Because we're going to talk about NXT, MLW, AEW, the dark side of Bruiser Bedlam, and the repugnantly rotten Rhodes reality wretchedness. All that for you right here today, friends. And you are our friends. And joining me, Hawaiian Brian, the podcasting lion, the king of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Mr. Co-host to you, the man who doesn't want friends unless they're tax deductible, the great Brian Last, everybody. Aloha, Jim. I would say it's a pleasure to be here, but I really don't know. You're stealing my lines now? You're stealing my entire open? Yes, yes, because I wanted to make sure that everybody out there knows that they are my friends. So when I go off on everybody in this program today, they'll re- they'll not take it personally. I'm not mad at the listeners, but boy, howdy, have we watched some wretched rottenness lately. The repeated repugnance of some of this <laughs> programming. Holy mackerel. Uh, and I've I've had a rough week. I'm all right now, but last week I was in rough shape. You know, I tell you, don't buy a Ford Focus. I wasn't intending on buying well, a Ford Focus. Well, don't do it now, whether you were going to or not. Listen to me. Do not buy a Ford Focus out there in in, in podcast land. It'll give you nothing but grief and tragedy. And I'll tell you why. Because, oh, long, many years ago, it was now, I have now had Black Beauty, my Ford Expedition, the big SUV. I've had that since 2007. And because of the last two years, when I just, you know, stopped driving anywhere, I have still not gotten to the mileage marker, the milestone that I said I was going to I was going to go ahead and then get rid of Black Beauty and get a brand new one with all the bells and whistles. It's the last vehicle I'll ever buy in my lifetime. But I haven't got to that milestone yet. And plus, I haven't wanted to go out in, in public and go through the the falderall of, of purchasing the new car when I don't need the old one almost at all anyway. Here to the post office and back, right? But I've got almost 300,000, 297 and change, almost 300,000 miles. So I figure I'm, I'm going to wait, and when I get to 300000 and I'll make that change. But it's going to be at the rate I've been going another couple of years, because I'm doing like fucking 40 miles a month, right? But not even 10 years ago, Stacy, for our, was it her birthday or our anniversary? Golly, that year, one or the other, she wanted this Ford Focus, and it's a nice little car. And boy, they're, they're zippy. And we had problems with it because she had wanted a certain kind of paint. And when we tried to order that, it was like a black sparkly kind of paint. The tsunami they had over somewhere, wherever it is they have the tsunamis about 10 years ago, had destroyed the factory that made that paint. And they were all backed up. So she had to get regular black. But we got the Ford Focus. And there is not. 50,000 miles on this vehicle. I got 300,000 on mine, right? 
The only problem I ever had is the fuel pump went out one time about six years ago. That's it. But this thing doesn't have hardly 50,000 miles on it, if that. And there's been 18 recall letters that we've gotten for this and that thing. And, you know, it's like, you know, you're fucking, you're driving down the road. If your front tire falls off, you may have an issue. That kind of shit. We're like, what the fuck? And constantly we had to take it back to the dealership and they say, oh no, we fixed that or no, that's not in this batch of things or no, this blah, 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 whatever the fuck. They're very accommodating over there because it's not their fault that their, their head honchos in Detroit apparently made a rotten car. But anyway, so what was it yesterday or the day before? I can't even remember now. But in, in, I'm minding my own business here at home. That's the way these stories usually start. In the afternoon, Stace has gone to a doctor's appointment. On the way back, she's going to stop by and bring us some dinner. So it's, it's getting almost rush hour time, and the phone rings. It's her, and I thought, ah, she's checking on the, the dinner order. Well, how sweet of her. Hello? Help! The car's broke down. I'm on the interstate. I'm in a bad spot. Ha! Ah! I'm like, how? Oh, one of us needs some relief. Now, I had to get the Jerry Clower in anyway. But I was like, oh, shit. I said, like, where are you? She's literally, and people misuse that phrase, but in this case, it's accurate. She's literally two miles from the house. She is in front of the exit that she would get off to come to our house off the, the highway here. But she is in a bad spot because she's passed the previous exit, and there's there's road construction been going on for months at, at this area of the highway. And it's the, one of the worst at, at rush hour. It's one of the glommiest places in town. And she's sitting uh, on the on ramp where the exit that she had just passed is getting on. You see what I'm saying? She got over as far as, as quick as she could, and people would let her with the blinkers on, and they think, oh, she's trying to pull something. We got to cut her off. So she has to get all the way over, and she's on the on-ramp on right at the end of it, right before the road construction sign, next to the guardrail with a drop-off and people passing by on the left-hand side. So anyway, as I'll be right there. Call AAA. We got the AAA platinum diamond thing they'll they'll tow your car anywhere they'll if you want them to they'll put it on a flatbed truck and drive it down to the ocean and fucking dunk the goddamn thing in which is what i requested but anyway so she's on the phone to AAA. i'm driving over there so i've got to go farther than she is actually to, to get around to come back you see what i'm saying and i pull up behind her in black beauty where at least i'm fair all right these fucking idiots pouring off this exit and speeding by and trying to cut each other off. At least I'll provide some type of blockage before they hit her smaller vehicle. And we had to sit there for 45 minutes and wait on the AAA truck. And I said, what happened? She was driving down the road, minding her own business at 60 miles an hour. And suddenly a bunch of lights came on and it just quit. And she got over to the side of the road. I said, it, it sounds like the fuel pump. I said, you've got gas, right? She said, yes, I've got gas. I was going to stop and get gas one mile down the road at the gas station when I got off the exit to come to our house. But it says I've got 20-something miles. And it's not 20 miles from here to the house. Okay. Well, it's got to be the fuel pump. 
and the truck gets here finally and he backs up and now these people are trying to go around and all this shit and he jacks this thing up and loads the car onto the truck and i said just in case because wasn't one of those recalls something about the fucking gas tank and she as a matter of fact she reminded me of that one of the one of the recalls is about the gas tank or something We've had all this shit checked out, but nevertheless, I tell the guy with the truck, I said, before you do anything else, haul it down to the next exit, get off. We're going to go to that gas station and we're going to try to put some gas in this thing and see if it'll start because it wouldn't start on the side of the road. All right. So if we finally get out of there, out of the, the danger that we were in our life and limb taken into our hands we get to the gas station he pulls up with it's a fucking flatbed truck with the car on it right it's not even being towed it's just up on it he pulls up on the gas pump and everything and we have to reach up and put fucking five gallons of gas in it guess what happened brian what happened that thing started right up fresh as a daisy and sure enough (laughs) Apparently, even though I had only put a, because I didn't want to sit there and fill the whole goddamn tank up if the if the car was dead, and also you know I'm standing there, it's on the truck, right? I just put five gallons in, but all of a sudden then it registered. Oh yeah, he's you could go a hundred and something miles on this. So apparently, we now find out that one of the recalls they said, well, just don't let the gas get too low in the in the tank, or you might have an issue. Because it'll tell you you've got gas when you don't have gas. Now, isn't the gas gauge one of the most important functions of the gas gauge? Not to tell you when you've got gas, but when you don't have any fucking gas. <laughs> so it's just going to tell you all the time you've got gas, regardless whether you got gas or not. You know what that gave me? Gas. So that was a two-hour journey in the midst of rush-hour traffic to risk our lives to go two miles from the house and 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 drag Stace off the side of the road where the Ford Motor Company had so compassionately left her because they can't figure out how to build a gas gauge in Detroit anymore. No wonder the country's going to hell in a handbasket. Eyes regusted. Do you know how many vehicles I've, I thought about this because now we're going to get her a new, we're just, she, she's looking now for the kind of new car that's not a Ford Focus that she wants to get. I'm going to have this thing run off the fucking bridge somewhere. But do you know, I started thinking how many vehicles I got my driver's license when I was 16 years old, when I turned 16 in 1977, that's been 44 years. Do you know how many cars that I have, I have owned a couple for my significant other, but I'm talking about that I have actually owned and driven of my own accord. In how many years? 44. Six. God damn you, McMahon. Eight. That was close. But one I only had for about three weeks. So that is, so I had. Three I weeks? Started, I, well, I started out, my first car was a 1973 used Pontiac Firebird. And I've told stories about it. That's why I first started going to some of the out-of-town matches with me and Weasel Dooley and 
and that uh, the you know it had a few problems like when you hit a pothole the air conditioning could go off and you had to hit another hole again for it to come back on and blah 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 but then I had that until 1982 when I got in the business and then that it wasn't going to make trips right so Jerry Jarrett he said he had a friend at the car dealership in hindsight I believe he probably had an ownership percentage <laughs> but at any rate he took me to a car dealership in Hendersonville and basically because I didn't have any credit to speak of and of that respect at that point in time I've just turned 21 but he's yeah give him a car he's gonna be working for me so they sold me a car and that's the one I had to wreck in and totaled in the Holly Springs National Forest coming back from Tupelo to Memphis that night almost killed myself so I had that about three weeks then I got a Datsun Maxima that I had from the time I worked the, the Memphis territory all the way till I went to Charlotte. And it had over 200,000 miles on it when I got rid of it and got a T-Bird in Charlotte at another dealership that the one of the salesmen liked the guys. And that had 150,000 plus miles on it three years later. And this is when we were switching, me and Bobby and Dennis or me and Bobby and Stan with each other's cars. So this is just... I put 150,000 miles on it in less than three years, just with a third of the driving, and we were flying. And I sold it to uh, one of the uh, teenage kids that lived down the street from me at the time in Charlotte when I got the Ford Taurus that I kept from the time that I, in 1990, when I lived in Charlotte, I had that all the way through Smoky Mountain and went to, to Connecticut with it. And that had 250,000-something miles on it. And that's the one that when I bought the Toyota Camry from Tony Rumble's cousin that owned the dealership up in Connecticut. <laughs> I forgot about that. That's right. <laughs> yeah. They hauled the Ford Taurus off and flattened it at a monster truck show. And then I that Toyota Camry, I had it through Connecticut and down here to OVW and put 200-something thousand miles on it. And then ended up raffling it off at the Davis Arena when I bought a used Lincoln Navigator, the only used car I ever bought. And it's the only one I've ever had major trouble with. I didn't have it 100,000 miles, and, and it had brain damage. And I traded it in and got the Ford Expedition in 2007. And that's the last car I bought. So you like Ford? Well, I just like cheap, dependable cars that last for 300,000 miles, and I can drive them into the fucking ground. But don't buy a Ford Focus. If you had a midlife crisis, the way others do, like a Jericho, for instance, and let's say you were really going to go all the way, and you were going to wear the yacht captain's hat and have the girlfriend <laughs> and get the fast car, how similar would Jim Cornette right now to midlife crisis be to 1983 Jim Cornette in Chattanooga? Oh, my God. The, no. gimmick, the character of Jim Cornette in Chattanooga, I should say. Well, I because I see, I can't imagine... I've already passed midlife, I think, by the way. Boy, if this is only the middle, geez, I, I'm going to live to be 120? Fuck. I should have saved more money. <laughs> um, I've only got enough to be 108. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, physically, I feel older because obviously more shit hurts. And I knew if I went in the ring and just dropped an elbow or took a body slam or whatever, it would probably fracture me in 18 pieces and I hurt myself and never get up again. But mentally, 
the uh, the only thing that makes me feel older is oh shit i'm doing the math on i got some shit left to do and running out of time and still have time to put my feet up so i need to apply myself but otherwise mentally i don't feel any different i've never thought oh my gosh i need to uh have a sports car or whatever i don't <laughs> actually again right now except for the post office and just the fact that I've got used to driving this big car, I sit up ahead of, of, of above everybody and I, it feels safer with all these maniacs on the road these days. So I like the safety size of the SUV, uh, but I don't, uh, I don't need a car anymore, practically. See, to me, that's when you do get a sports car, when you're only going to the post office and back and the supermarket and back. That's the perfect well, place to have the sports car then, then I, th that is opening myself up for disaster can you i come out of the post office and some nitwit has pulled up next to my fucking corvette with the impeccable paint job and opened his door and dinged it and you just know i'm gonna have to say something about that and imagine how good that video will be how good will that video do how good it'll, will that video it'll be? be surveillance video that'll be subpoenaed in court that's a, you know, every time I've been to New York, Philadelphia, any big city where those downtown streets are just ridiculous, but especially New York, just with the complete lack of concern that any of the cab drivers or anybody else has for anybody, anybody's vehicle or property or the person, I can't imagine having even a, a new inexpensive car. And it, I would be a nervous wreck driving around there. If you didn't have something that you didn't give a shit about that was already just beat up, it's going to get dinged. I mean, I've, as a matter of fact, one time when I had that Lincoln Navigator, we drove up to a Ring of Honor event in New York City, and I parked in that parking garage three blocks down from the hotel we were staying at for $60 a night. And this is more of 13, 14 years ago, whatever. And when we got to the vehicle back and took off down the road to get the fuck out of there, wherever they had parked it in the parking garage, I had something that was greasy and cloudy down my driver's window and the door and the fucking running board or whatever they get, all that shit. I washed that thing 15 times that shit wouldn't come off the window. I don't know what the fuck it was. It was like they parked it next to a a waterfall of city grease. <laughs> it sounds like most parking places in New York, actually. So anyway, so I would not have anything that I had any pride of ownership in and drive around in New York or any of those places of that ilk. Notice I didn't say get a Lamborghini and drive around Manhattan. I said drive to the post office, drive to the supermarket, bring the Lamborghini home, low well, mileage. That's fucking ridiculous. Then as soon as you fucking bought it and you've driven it home, put, put it in your garage, it's worth $20,000 less. Right. That's, just, that's financial irresponsibility. I've never been a fancy car person. I'm not either anymore, but I may in the future. But don't buy a Ford Focus. I won't. Anyway. Um, and we, we should recognize at the top of the program uh, that uh, not only a famous wrestling veteran legend, but also the one of the godfathers of the whole wrestling belt business and industry. Reggie Parks passed away just, I guess, yesterday. And gosh, and I forgot to note how old he was, but he would have been in his early 80s at this point, would he not? Or do you know? 
I'll find his age right now, but that sounds right. Um, and for people who don't recognize the name, Reggie Parks in the 50s and 60s and 70s was a journeyman wrestler that wrestled in, you know, like umpteen territories almost everywhere all across the country. And especially he had spent a lot of time in the AWA for the last half of his career. And he worked uh, toward the end of it under a mask as the Avenger because he he was always in great shape and had a great looking physique. But as he got into his 40s facially, he looked older. So he put a hood on. Boom. Um, 87. 87. Holy shit. <clears throat> well, there you go. Um, but anyway, um, but he became more integral to the wrestling business uh, toward the latter years of his in-ring career than after he retired because he was the guy that made in the early days when only a, you could only get them in a few different places and they meant something, he made the title belts for the different wrestling promotions. And gosh, I guess what Nikita Malkovich is the guy who the Russian wrestler who made a lot of the, the 1960s era belts and, and that you still saw in the early seventies. And, and actually he made the, the belts that, that Crockett used as the NWA world tag team belts until 1986 when Rude and Manny made off with them. So those are the original ones that the midnight held. And a lot of the WWWF uh, belts from the late sixties, early seventies was Nikita Malkovich, that kind of design. I can't describe it verbally, but for those of you who knows what those belts look like, but then pretty much after that, from what the late seventies, early eighties, Reggie took over. And he made almost all the territory belts. He didn't make the um, the domed globe. They got that done, did they not? Uh, Paul Bosch had a part to play in that and got it in Mexico, right? That sounds right. Um, but he made almost all of the the territory belts that were that looked any decent and were worth anything. I mean, I've said this before. The one thing I complained about the Memphis territory was they would use shit belts and they'd use them until they fell completely apart and with no shame whatsoever, just complete lack of shame. But Reggie's belts were professional and they looked good. And so he did that for, for years and then uh, brought a few other people into the business with him and gradually handed it off to, you know, to Dave Milliken and, and some people that Dave has worked with. Um, but he actually made the Smoky Mountain belts. And it's a funny thing because I, I don't have any real personal anecdotes about Reggie because I never I met him once finally at a fan fest somewhere. God years ago, but in the modern era. Right. But at the time that I got the Smoky Mountain belts from him and for years after that, I had never met him. Not in person. I talked to him on the phone because you just knew that when you started a company or needed a belt in the, you know, in the eighties and nineties, well, somebody better call Reggie. And, you know, when the territories went out of business, he slowed down there a little while in the early nineties. Thankfully I was able to get him to do the smoky mountain belts, but I, I had no idea of what the process was for making belts. Right. I, you know, I didn't know how that those, the plates are made or shaped or the gold embossing or whatever is put on or the letter. I, you know, I just, 
I knew what I wanted to wanted it them to look like based on being a fan of wrestling and seeing belts and knowing belts, but I had no idea how they were made. So this is how good Reggie was. I said, I've got his number and called him on phone, explained I wanted two tag belts and a singles belt. And I said, Reggie, if I just kind of sketch this out or draw it out on a piece of paper for you, how I kind of want it to look, is that, is that good? Oh yeah. Yeah. And I said, and you know, I don't like the slick gold. I like the texture, like, you know, the guys wearing the gold, he could identify with this when the, when the guys in the eighties in the big territory started making all the money, they got the big fucking gold bracelets and watches and that, that textured look to it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I just, with a pen and a piece of paper, drew how I kind of wanted the plates to look and told him that on the phone. And also for the heavyweight title belt, uh, my mom, I've told this story before, but it's applicable here. My mom used to order in the 70s. Just items from, do you ever, do they still, I think they still have a catalog, but have you ever heard of Finger Hut? Of course, yeah. Okay, well, this, it was a small deal in the 70s, but they would send out mail order catalogs and they'd have little cheap items or whatever. I guess it's maybe a bigger deal today. But if you bought something or bought X amount of things or whatever, they'd give you free gifts and they were cheap gifts. She had somehow amassed a treasure trove of seven giant cubic zirconia fake diamonds as finger hut free gifts i don't and and i saw him when i was visiting one day and uh before when i was setting smoky mountain up i said are you gonna use these fake diamonds right well, what a question she's like no take them so i sent him the fake diamonds and had him put them in the the uh you know the points on the crown in the in the etc the area of the crown in the uh heavyweight title belt and and anyway, that's what I, the point I was going to make. From that, he was so good. Boom! It, within a couple of months, he had done the belts, sent them to me in a box in the mail. They looked beautiful. Everybody's obviously seen pictures, and 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 that was also what made the Smoky Mountain Heavyweight Title even more sentimental to me because my mom's fake finger hut diamonds were in it. And his na- and he always stamped his name uh, with the leather stamp on the on the end of the one of the belts where it straps on the back. Reggie Parks and those are stamped on there also. So anyway, uh, eighty seven years old. So I I hope I make it that far. You, I'm not so sure about Brian. You're not so sure I'll make it, or that you'll hope I'll make it. Either one. Hey, um, well that's, that'd be a long way for you to go. Being as you're only a mere scant of a pup of a lad. Anyway, I have this fucking show. We we are watching. We're biting off more than we can chew, as Mama Cornette used to say. We're watching too much. We're taking it upon ourselves to critique the entire world of wrestling and its periphery. And I've got notes and emails printed out, plus the new website, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, the the contact form works impeccably for people to be able to email me. I've gone through like 300 emails in the last four days trying to, I'm not answering them, but I'm reading them. I'm digesting them. And I thank everyone for the nice thing that they, things that they've said, but I got, um, supposed to have three. Where's the other one? Here we go. Three emails from listeners. And I'm going to paraphrase a couple of these. Cause I just want to wish people well. Um, Avi, 
I believe is the way it's pronounced. A-V-I, Avi from Israel. Yeah, that's how you pronounce it. Um, well, you don't have to be a fucking smarty pants, you know. I'm just ha- trying to help you. What do you mean? How, how much time have you spent in Israel? I've known several Avis, and I've actually not gone to Israel. You don't know this one? I didn't tell you what his last name was. I literally know multiple Avis from Israel. If it's A-V-I, I knew it was going to be Avi. Well. What else would it be? Avi? As Bobby Eaton used to say, you ain't the smartest motherfucker in the world. Then I would respond with, I'm the smartest motherfucker in this car. I was going to say, did he say that to you? Was he, were you the yes, one he would say yes, that? Yes, that's the one he would, say, he would say that, and I would respond. But anyway, Avi, and now that we've jacked around here, I'm trying to, I'm going to take this in the other direction. We did want to say condolences. Avi's aunt passed away recently, and we want to send our condolences on that. But also, he mentioned that better help was a benefit to him with another issue, and he heard about them from our show, so he thanked us for that. And I've got to read one line verbatim from the email. Uh, he, quote, the joy you guys give will always be appreciated. Did you ever think anybody would say that about you and me, Brian? I've been hearing that for years. What? Anyway, I've also got an email. I will paraphrase again. Uh, but uh, Jason from Newark, England. Is that the way you say Jason? You know any other Jasons? I didn't realize it was a Newark in England. I'm so sorry, England. Newark, England. Well, there's one in Delaware, there's one in New Jersey, and there's one in England. But Jason from Newark, England, we just wanted to tell you from me and Brian that we were glad that we can take your mind off of things, and et cetera, that you've been going through. And by the way, fuck her and feed her fish heads. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. Fish heads. Fish heads. Rotten fish heads. Well, do you know any other kind? And I got an email. I wanted to uh, a guy named Mike from Minnesota to know that I did get his email and I appreciated it. I'm going to paraphrase this again, but basically his, his wife had gotten him a cameo from me earlier this year. Some of the first ones that I did because he had lost his job and he was worried about his health insurance because part of the benefit of his health insurance wa- was helping with his addiction recovery. And he was afraid that it would impact that not having any insurance. And then the worst problem of all, his friends liked AEW from the beginning. So he was just up shit Creek without a paddle. But anyway, I sent him a little, his wife wanted a, a cameo with a little feel good, a little support, a little pep talk there, a little win one for the Gipper. And uh, Mike has started a new job on September 21st. It's in his field. He's doing work that he enjoys. He's getting paid enough to support his family. And he's got his health insurance. And he's 38 months clean and sober. So everything's looking up. And I wanted Mike to know that we got the email so that we knew what was happening. Keep going, Mike. It sounds like you're going uphill. Just keep at it. Well, no, no. See, now you're, you're, you're violating your own ruling here, your own goddamn uh, 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 statement uh, here last week. Every time that I said that Travis Heckle was going downhill because it was easier now that he's, he's, he's getting better, he's recovering from his illness, you said downhill would be bad. And I said, well, uphill seems like it would be. No, downhill's bad. So, but now you're telling him to go uphill and that doesn't seem right. What the hell are you talking about, Brian? I think what you just said in some crazy way 
was that I said the exact same thing today that I said last time. But you started it by telling me my whole story has changed. Well, because I just don't, <laughs> I just don't understand this whole thing. Oh, well. uh, we we will talk about tra- we'll talk about Travis going downhill in a second. First oh. of all, I wanted to mention everybody else going downhill. It's all downhill from here, folks. If you were a customer of Cornette's Collectibles at jimcornette.com. It's all downhill for you from here. This is the easy part for you. The hard part for me has just started because I'm going to be going up. I'm going to be slogging up the hill of fulfilling all these orders. We did. The website, jimcornette.com, is still up, and it's beautiful. They're spectacular, folks, for you Seinfeld fans. The site is up, but the store has been closed. We have suspended merchandise sales as was predicted and warned about over the weekend um we got up to almost 2000 individual orders and i have put up a statement i could have been a greedy prick and just take everybody's money and take six months to get everybody their merchandise but i'm not going to do that to the because then everybody else in the wrestling business might do that but i go for the rematches i go for the repeat business I want these people to come back and be satisfied and buy more fine merchandise for me in the future. So we have suspended sales while we do this. And Hotchkiss is helping me out. Uh, we, we've, as I mentioned on the drive through a bunch of people have then written in after their, the fact of their order and said, Oh, we put the wrong address down or we screwed up the personalization. He's trying to wrangle all that for me and make the changes on the, orders and we're meeting tomorrow and uh i'm gonna doing the handoff and then i'm gonna start from there autographing things on sunday and the first of many shipments will start going out on wednesday october 13th as far as i can't honestly imagine that we're going to open the store again before christmas because it's if i do 350 packages a week um that's going to take me six weeks. I don't know. Maybe I can beat that, but we have to do two days of recording and watching all this Falderall as well to satisfy everybody. So we're doing the best we can, but thank you guys for your support. I've got the only web store that's open 20 days per year. And speaking of their support, the YouTube channel uh, and the artwork on same has been tremendous lately. Even we are missing Travis. Obviously he's, he, I don't know if he's uphill. I don't know if he's downhill. He's, he's, he's getting better. Maybe he's in the Valley. Maybe he just, he's, maybe he's just kind of in the middle in the holler there. He's just wafting down the river. I don't know. But in the meantime, we've had a bunch of more talented people doing artwork for us. And now that more people are getting the, the message that we didn't, spurn travis and kick him out homeless in the street with hungry children or something and he's just taking a few weeks off that uh they're not as mad at the the new guest artists that's right and everyone has done a great job and we should say travis is getting better travis is climbing that hill once again despite the laziness of mr jim Cornette and these metaphors but he is on the mend and he will be back very very soon but once again the last couple of weeks we have had so many talented people help out and share their art with the listeners and this fucking chair. Hold on. 
We've had so many talented ladies, people. Gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, now the the only chair in the world with multiple Twitter accounts of its own. It will be featured on the FanFest circuit in 2022 when crowds are when the, the the pandemic regulations are lax enough for it to handle the crowds that the squeaky chair will draw. And we do have cameos planned in the future for Brian Last's squeaky chair. That's right. But in the meantime, we want to thank some of the great artists who have been filling in. One of them is Jesse Laban. We had someone named Coyote Duran the other day. We had a Duran. Now we have a Laban. We're getting everyone in Duran Duran. But Wait Jesse Laban. I, th I, I thought that was like Labamba. No, like Simon Laban. Jesse Isn't Le that bon. the lead singer of? Oh, Jesse Laban. I thought you said Labam. Labamba. Laba, laba, labamba. First of all, somehow you somehow you got the the lyrics of La Bamba wrong, and there's only three lyrics there that you quoted. Love La, La Bamba. All right, Richie Valens. Well, let me go back to Jesse Laban here, who, who has Jesse, been a Jesse Laban and Simon Laban and Duran Duran and right. Coyote Calhoun. And Jesse's been a big bopper when it comes to some of the artwork. You can check out some of his other art at jessielaban.com. That's L-E-B-O-N. Also, Instagram.com slash Jesse underscore Laban. And speaking of Jesse's, another very talented Jesse who has contributed artwork to the channel is Jesse Rodriguez. This is going to be a tough one, but ladies and gentlemen, visit Instagram.com slash MXDX underscore Gorgeous. Once again, MXDX underscore Gorgeous on Instagram for Jesse Rodriguez. And one more I want to mention this week, Steve McGinnis. You can go to steveillustration.com or instagram.com slash stevehorrorart. But Steve McGinnis has also done some great work for the channel. We really appreciate everyone's hard work, everyone's dedication, the talent, and everyone putting up with my current emails. Thank you all so much. We really do appreciate you. Steve McGinnis, you know who that puts me in mind of that has not been mentioned in years and years? Pat McGinnis. Pat McGinnis. Do you remember him? I do, from uh, Memphis, actually. Does anyone else remember him? He was, at one time, did they not put the world title, the their alleged were the CWA world title, on Pat McGinnis? I they did. They did, yeah. Off of, you were off of Thunderbolt Patterson, I believe. What an amazing list of champions the CWA <laughs> had. Superstar Billy Graham, Thunderbolt Patterson, Jerry the King Lawler, and Pat McGinnis. And Billy Robinson. And Billy Robinson. And Billy Robinson. And Pat McGinnis. And I don't know how Thunderbolt and Pat, boy, I tell you what, that was Pat McGinnis was... He was a uh, big muscular fellow. I wonder whatever happened to him. Did he ever work any other territory ever? I don't know. I only know him from Memphis. And I'm not seeing any results anywhere else. I'm briefly looking at different things here. No other information. I mean, I figured <laughs> you would know more. You were actually there when he was there. He was there for like fucking six weeks. Thunderbolt came in, I think, and dropped the belt to him. I saw Thunderbolt three weeks. That was that was three three weeks of enough. Anyway. I was actually going to say, did Thunderbolt really drop the belt to him, or was it a phantom switch? I thought that would be the only reason you put the belt on Pat McGinnis. You know what? Well, now, wait a minute. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm remembering it the other way around. Maybe Thunderbolt came in and fucking beat him for the belt and then disappeared. <laughs> uh, 
<clears throat> well, I'm looking up right now the CWA world title. Okay, Hold on. All right. Now you got to. Here are the champions. It was 19. The, the year was 1979. When this happened, I will say Thunderbolt Patterson and Pat McGinnis. According to Wikipedia, which of course is like J. Michael Kenyon, Fred Hornby, and Scott Teal put together. <laughs> but according to Wikipedia, the first champion was Thunderbolt Patterson, winning it in Memphis, Tennessee at a house show. It was, oh no, he defended it at a house show. It was said that he won the belt over Mark Lewin in Australia. That's right. Champion. That's right. Like, like Mark Lewin was a huge fucking name in Tennessee anyway. Right, like they could. Yeah, he'd never, he'd never been in Memphis in his life. At least, I mean, that's the weirdest thing. It's kind of like Jerry with Salvador Luteroth. There's a basis of truth there. Would Mark Lewin have been in Australia? Yes. Would he have been a part of any of this? No, no. But Thunderbolt won the belt in April, allegedly over Mark Lewin, and then Pat McGinnis won it in October in Louisville, defeating Hector Guerrero. After Thunderbolt had vacated the title, leaving That's the CWA. That's right. Okay. That's right. <laughs> Basically, Thunder Thunderbolt came in, uh, was there for just a few weeks, was uh, billed as the champion, and then left. And at that point, Pat McGinnis beat Hector Guerrero, and then the whole belt left shortly thereafter. Or was that where they was that where they set it up for Lawler to, or for Graham? McGinnis. McGinnis had the belt for six days, yeah. and then he lost the world title to Billy Graham in Memphis, and then it says that he lost the belt to Lawler in Lexington in November of 79. Rupp Arena, I think it was November the 6th. I I, I saw that match. It was not, as I remember, taped for video. Um, I've never seen video of it. I've got the only pictures as far as I know, but... You know that Billy Graham, even in his physical prime, was never a smooth and polished worker, but he was the amazing promo and the amazing physique and the amazing charisma, right? And and it worked a lot better in the WWF where they were used to big guys and not long matches and not a lot of fucking ball-busting work. And Lawler was also always known as a magician. He could have, he had Mark Henry's first match ever in front of people. He could work with a fucking, you know, paraplegic. He, you know, can have a match with anybody of any level of experience. But he couldn't overcome Billy Graham's lack of motivation <laughs> to do anything at that point, except show up and try to figure out if he was still in shape where he could get another, another run with Vince, to be honest. Cause those matches were just, well, he only had one with, see, that's the thing. As far as I can remember, I don't even think Lawler ever wrestled Billy Graham in Memphis. Cause the title change was in Lexington and that was a, a big town for him, but there was no rematches. There was no long program. It was like, let's establish this thing as a belt with a real recognized former world champion holding it so that Lawler can win it. Um, but that match didn't do anything for anybody. And then after Lawler got vacated again, because that's when he broke his leg. And he broke his leg. And then that's you know when Jarrett brought Billy Robinson in and put it on him because he was a guy that you would take as a world heavyweight wrestling champion. But it just that nobody was going to buy that belt at that time around here and it is a pretty drastic 
switch to go, and you had to because of the injury, to go from Lawler on top, a heel eventually right before he got injured, and the next thing you know, it's Paul Ellering and Billy Robinson pushing to the top in Memphis. Nothing against them, but it's just such a complete switch in the type of main event talent. Well, yeah, well, and to be honest, it, it wasn't expected for Billy Robinson to be the top babyface. It was expected for him to, if they, if their world title that they had just made wasn't going to go to complete shit, it had to be on a worldwide recognized name. But Jimmy Hart became the top heel. They switched Ellering and put the, the crown on him just so Jimmy could manage him. But that's where they started putting all the heat on Jimmy Hart and, and his soon-to-be first family to await Lawler's eventual return. And then Jimmy Valiant, they they got uh, he and Lawler had been both heels and partners when Lawler broke his leg. But they switched Valiant on Jimmy Hart and anybody he managed so that Valiant, Valiant could work with Ellering because people took handsome as a baby face in Memphis, even when he was a heel half the time. So he was technically the top baby face at first, but you know, it, you couldn't, you couldn't make Jimmy at the time, the world heavyweight champion that was supposed to be, you know, stand alone from the pack when he was, you know, had done his gimmick all that time. So it was very confused. The point is, <laughs> Jerry Jarrett didn't speak to fucking Lawler for a while because he broke his leg and we've covered that story, but because Lawler was literally almost the key to the territory going out of business or not. And thank God if they hadn't had Dundee to not only to book, but also to be the bedrock baby face guy on the card when handsome, you know, we could be the baby face and then they, hand it to somebody else and bring somebody else in. But Dundee was kind of the concrete there at the time that held it together for a year, but they were, especially Memphis was not doing well, but you know, even Louisville and Evansville, everything dropped that year. Anyway, and you brought up belts earlier. That's one of the belts. No one knows where the original is, right? As far as I know. Yeah, no, nobody knows where the daggum thing is. And it was that I can't remember. Lawler and Jared got it made somewhere. It had stained glass in it. <laughs> and it, it was not made from a recognized belt maker that ever made another belt or had made one beforehand. And it didn't look like any other belt. So it was kind of cool in that respect. But yeah, the lettering was stained glass instead of paint or whatever. Anyway, somebody's got that somewhere. Call uh, BR549. We got another email, and this is in response to something that we were talking about a week or two ago. We reviewed the television. Well, it was last week because it was the first, the debut of Roads to the Top. Uh, and it was something that we talked about, but this is a different viewpoint at looking at something that we had mentioned. This is from DJ, who's from DJ from Akron. We said that there was Brandy talking to the to the girl about, well, what do you need, you know, so you don't go out there and have a panic attack. And I'm like, fuck, has it come to this now that the professional wrestlers are having panic attacks before they go out and do TV? I said, I, the only time I ever had a panic attack was when I was in Tulsa or Houma, Louisiana or someplace I thought I was going to get stabbed. Otherwise, I've, there's no danger of anybody being stabbed 
uh, by any of these fans on this program. So why are they having panic attacks? Blah, blah, blah. But this from DJ brings up a completely different way to look at it. Are you ready for this? Okay. In regard to the segment on the show where Brandy asked that performer about how to avoid a panic attack, I have a couple of issues with how Brandy approached this. First off, why do this specifically in front of the cameras? Is she doing this actually to help the performer and the cameras just happen to be there? Or is she just trying to make herself look like a, quote, caring and supportive person, unquote, or something like that? Did the performer actually want her issues with a potential panic attack or with other mental health stuff aired out on national television like that? On a, quote, reality show, unquote, at that. Given Brandy's status as a higher-up officer in the company and thus representing an employer isn't revealing that stuff publicly like that, a possible HIPAA violation or something of that nature. I mean, employers HIPAA. aren't supposed to HIPAA. See, if, if that had been the Code Academy spot, you'd have fucking laughed at me. <laughs> um, This could affect that. Uh, oh, uh, Employers aren't supposed to be doing stuff like that in most businesses, but here Brandy is potentially doing that here. This could affect that performer's employment or contracts, regardless of what business she may go into. Jim, you talk about lazy booking sometimes, but this seems to be lazy thinking on Brandy's part. Second, in the event the performer in question just wanted to have her nerves calmed and didn't have any mental health issues to speak of, why does Brandy automatically talk about panic attacks? The way Brandy approached this, she comes off like how a spoiled teenager sometimes exaggerates how they feel and go to the extremes with their descriptions. For example, some teenagers may say, they're so depressed when they're just simply bored or a bit down. Or some teenage girl may say they're having a major life crisis when they're just looking for a shoe or a dress to wear. It seemed to me like Brandy came off like a spoiled, rotten teenager exacerbating whatever this performer's issues were in order to, again, come off as a caring and supportive person for the cameras, in this case confusing supposedly rattled nerves with an outright panic attack. And DJ has gone on to say that he has, and I won't read all of this, but uh, has dealt with panic attacks, depression, social anxiety, etc., for most of his adult life. And so these are the things that he immediately thought of. So while I was just thinking about how goddamn scared does she have to be to go out and work on television unless she's going to be in the ring with <laughs> Nyla Rose or Jane Cargill is going to drop her on her head, whatever, Chris Flatlinder, whatever the case. Here's another way to look at it. I think Brandy should apologize to uh, whatever Blue Pants' name is. What do you think? The librarian is her name, I think. Well, that's no, that's her profession. I don't know what her name is. No, she, she's on third. We're not talking about her. <laughs> Who's on first? What's on second? Anyway. Uh, I've got another email. Would you like to hear another email? Yeah. Because now we have an update on the football business. The Jacksonville Jaguars. This is from Evan. And I suppose I actually, I I lost where Evan's from, but I suppose he's from Jacksonville because he's a fan of the team. 
And uh, he did give us an email, uh, Evan did, here some months back, talking about how the Jacksonville Jaguars apparently, you know, I don't know anything about football, but apparently they're not well thought of in the industry, or at least amongst the fan population. They're not doing too good. Not Things are not going smoothly for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Have you heard about this? Yes, I think everyone has heard about this. And now apparently they're having problems with their coach. Guy named Urban Meyer. Have you ever heard of him? Of course, yeah. Of course, Urban Meyer. Of course, I've heard of George Slapnuts. Fuck's sake, Urban Meyer. He's supposed to be a big time name in this business, huh? All right. Anyway, uh, Evan says, unlike our friend Travis, my Jacksonville Jaguars have gone significantly downhill. In January, Shad Khan hired a man named Urban Meyer to be our head coach after the previous one was relieved of his duties. Meyer is one of the most decorated collegiate football coaches of all time, yet critics and myself were worried about how that style of coaching would translate to the professional level. There were several more qualified candidates available, yet many people thought that Shad Khan simply wanted to make the biggest splash and get people talking rather than hire the right person for the job. Hmm. Makes you think. One of Meyer's first actions as head coach was to sign his former college quarterback, Tim Tebow, to a contract as a tight end. Now, I've heard of this Tebow fella. He, but uh, not lately. Seems like people were talking about him years ago, right? Oh, well, here we go. Uh, he signed him to a contract as a tight end, which is a completely different position than a quarterback that requires a significantly different skill set. Tebow had not played in the NFL in almost seven years and yet was given a roster spot for a position that he had never played, taking a spot away from players who had worked their whole careers to receive such an opportunity with an NFL team. This move was seen as cronyism and was widely panned by the football world. Tebow was cut shortly thereafter. Where was this guy for seven years? You know anything about football? Tebow? Yeah. <laughs> I know exactly where he was. Where was he? He got signed to a minor league contract by the New York Mets as what a lot of people saw as a publicity stunt that worked because he now was- Now, wait a minute. Are the Mets a football team? No. So the Mets signed a football player to play baseball for him. Yes, a minor league contract. And I believe he was one of the biggest drawing cards in the minor leagues. For a few years there. He wasn't a great player. Can't completely put him down. He worked hard and he got to be okay, although probably not at the level they promoted him to. But he was literally promoted because he was a drawing card. He was signed because he was a drawing card. The same reason the Mets signed fucking Garth Brooks 25 years ago, whatever. It was a publicity stunt. Wait a minute. Okay. Okay. You've just blown my mind. What? I didn't know Garth Brooks played football or baseball. He's a baseball player and the Mets signed him and he would report to the spring training camp for a few years there. Tebow actually played full seasons for the minor league Mets for several years. But wait, if he was playing in the NFL, then why did he turn around and, and be signed to a minor league baseball contract? Do minor league baseball players make more than actual NFL football players? Oh, no, they don't make very much at all, minor league baseball players, unless they're a high draft pick or someone who got a big bonus to sign. But typically they make nothing. I mean, they make worse than 
wrestlers signed to some of these small promotions we know about. Then why did he leave the NFL if he was in the NFL to begin with? He left the NFL because no one would sign him to a job in the NFL. Oh. And there are other people who have done two sport, Deion Sanders, Bo Jackson. I mean, there's been a lot of guys, very talented, excel in two sports, or at times, you know, Deion was okay in baseball times. I don't know anything about Tebow's baseball background, but when football was over, he went into baseball. It was a publicity stunt for the Mets. By all accounts, he was a nice guy. The publicity stunt ended this year, and then all of a sudden he was signed to the Jacksonville Jaguars, <laughs> which, you know, it, it ended up being exactly what it was when the Mets signed him, I hate to say. So he played in the NFL, but then nobody would give him a job in the NFL, so he took a job as a minor league baseball player, and then after seven years out of football, the new head coach of this team hired him to play a position he had never played and be the most important player on the team, the quarterback. No, no, I don't believe he was hired to come back and be the quarterback. I believe he was going to be a running back. Oh, no, he was a quarterback, but yeah. now he's a tight end. Tight end, that's right. Tight that's end. Right, that's right. But it's a completely running different back. position. Tight end, yes. Point is, this sounds like a monkey fucking a football to me. What yeah. the hell? So anyway, Meyer stated publicly that he disagreed with the team's draft selection of a certain player, which is, of course, a major no-no and immediately shattered said player's confidence. After a week four loss to Cincinnati, Meyer stayed behind and didn't fly back with the team, which is extremely unusual. Pictures and videos later emerged of Meyer, a married father of three, grinding on and dancing with a woman at a bar. This prompted Shad Khan to release a statement that Meyer must regain our trust and respect. So basically, a sums up, the Jaguars finished the worst record in the league last year. They got the number one draft pick in the NFL draft, which they used on quarterback Trevor Lawrence from Clemson. Coming out of college, Lawrence was regarded as the best quarterback prospect of all time, a superstar capable of single-handedly taking a team to the Super Bowl. Since joining the Jaguars, he looks like one of the worst quarterbacks in the league and has received no help from his coaches, nor the players that the coaches have assembled. This kid needs a life preserver. And the people who are paid to bring out the best in him, keep throwing him an anchor. So now they're four weeks into the football season, and the Jaguars are the worst team in the league with a record of 0-4. Non-competitive in every game, undisciplined, poorly coached, and now there are rumors that Meyer will be removed as head coach after only four weeks. Several players have also said that Meyer has completely lost the locker room and commands zero respect from his players. Well, fuck this guy then, huh? I believe he's religious, too. Well, yeah, but see? Wait a minute. I thought he was grinding on some hoochie mama in a, in a, a cheap alcohol establishment. Right. You could do that if you're religious. You've got to ask for forgiveness afterwards. Well, heck, you can always just ask for forgiveness anyway without having to go through the religion part. Wouldn't that be uh, quicker, easier, better tasting? I guess better tasting, potentially, yeah. Well, do you think... That old Urban Meyer, the coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars, do you think that he wants to keep his job, Brian? That he wants to keep a hold of what he's got? You know, actually, I kind of wonder if he wants to keep his job or not, to be quite honest with you. But I'm sure, more than likely, he wants to keep that con money, because if he didn't have that con money, his hair might fall out. Well, besides that, he wants to keep his hair, and whether it's the hair on top of his head 
or the hair on the hoochie mama sitting on his lap. <laughs> Folks, did you know that two out of three men will experience some form of hair loss by the time they're 35, that more than 50 million men in the United States suffer from male pattern baldness, and there are only two FDA-approved medications that can prevent hair loss, and our friends at Keeps offer generic versions of both of them. Yes, folks, it's a low-cost treatment starting at just $10 a month because the generic versions of these finest hair loss medications are available through our friends at Keeps.com. They offer a simple and stress-free way to keep your hair. The quicker you start, the quicker you're going to see results. Treatments can take four to six months. To see the results, you got to act fast, but you can keep what you got on top of your head. The discreet packaging delivered straight to your door, convenient virtual doctor consultations. You don't even have to leave the house. You don't have to tell anybody about it. And obviously it won't work on facial hair, but it will work on the hair on top of your head. And right now, as a matter of fact, our good friend, Hotchkiss Featherbottom is currently participating. He's one of the trial members in a test group. Their testing keeps his effectiveness on pubic hair. Now, we don't know anything what? yet, folks. Well, Hotchkiss had a problem. He is one of the many men that's been stricken with early-onset male pubic baldness. And so he's in clinical trials right now. We may have some news in the future, folks. Right now, if you get the keeps, Keep it to the top of your head. Don't rub it on your crotch. Let Hotchkiss be the canary in the coal mine on that one, folks. But if you're ready to take action... It's only for your head. It, that's what I just said. If you're no, ready no, to take God. action... No, I, I said that right now, you know, there's there's a lot more testing to be done. And have you seen Hotchkiss's crotch lately? Good God, the swelling alone. But anyway, if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, did that one not make it? Go to keeps.com, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash J-C-E to receive your first month of treatment for free. That's keeps.com slash J-C-E. Get your first month's treatment for free. Prevention is the key, folks. Keeps the hair on your head. We'll give you updates on the hair and Hotchkiss's crotch. Don't do anything till you hear more from us on that. And go to keeps.com slash J-C-E. A reminder, keeps this for your head, not your crotch. Please use yes. it only on your head. On your head. And actually, we should mention, if you want to be more specific, the head on your shoulders. If you wanted to be more specific, yes, you would certainly yes. specify that. Because, and, and actually, if you used it on the other head, well, the hair don't need to grow that far up the shaft. Oh, shit. You'd, I guess you could probably make some money. If you had no. hair on that part of your... How would you make money with that? Well, Ooh. fuck the, the, the county fairs and the carnivals. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe in Romania. I don't know about here. But once again, ladies and gentlemen, Keeps, a wonderful service. Go to their website right now, keeps.com slash JCE. Well, and we'll move on because, folks, we've got more to talk about today on the program than just early onset male pubic baldness. Uh, there was a story on... Uh, our friends at Inside the Ropes, by the way, Kenny McIntosh, uh, hope you're feeling better. He's been puny lately. Uh, but I, I don't know Kenny. you, but yeah, get well soon. You have such a great name. You got to yes, be healthy. I, I love Kenny McIntosh, and he's with Inside the Ropes, and his itrwrestling.com site had a uh, story on comments that 
Bubba Ray Dudley made recently about an altercation that he had with uh, the La Resistance team, uh, Sylvain Grenier, I believe. I never could pronounce his fucking name. And Rene Dupree. Um, and this just tickled me because I can see all these people doing all these things. So anyway, uh, but Bubba Ray said, uh, you know, he was talking about he was a straight up person to do business with. He was. It was, it was you know, you could tell him anything and he would say anything. But he wouldn't take it personally or whatever. But, you know, if you fuck with him and and or, you know, uh, basically he's trying to say and in a, in a roundabout way, well, I guess it's not even a roundabout way. He described him as the shits. But he was trying to say that the La Resistance team had a bunch of heat with the fans because their gimmick but they were the shits in the ring and he and Devon tried to have matches with them, but it was getting so bad that he and Devon were starting to look bad. And honestly, Rene Dupree was pretty good, but Sylvan was nah, right. And that's why they put Conway in there. It wasn't a, it was a free birds instance and in that they needed a worker like Buddy Roberts on the team. So they put Conway in there, even though he's not French, he's from fucking new Albany. I was going to ask you the period of time that Bubba Ray is talking about. Is that when Conway was with the team or was it before Conway? Well, he just mentions Sylvan and Renee. So anyway, this is the story. So one night in the ring, this is Bubba Ray. It was that time and me and Devon had just started laying it in a little bit. Uh, and we come back through the curtain and one of the La Resistance guys, he didn't say who, but I, it had to be Sylvan. One of the La Resistance guys goes to me in a French accent. Ugh, what are you shooting on me for? Don't you know I am green? <laughs> so I smacked him in his face. <clears throat> and then he says, Johnny Ace pulls me and Devon on the side and goes, come on, Bubba, you know, you can't be beating up the young boys. And I said, Johnny, let me ask you a question. And I can hear Bubba Ray saying this. Let me ask you a question. If me and Devon showed up in Japan and were working against you and Dr. Death Steve Williams and Doc started laying into me in the ring and I would have come back through the curtain at Korakuen Hall and say, hey, Doc, what are you shooting on me for? Don't you know I'm green? What would have happened? And Johnny said, Doc would have beat the shit out of you. I said, exactly. And I would have deserved it. Well, I get your point, but you can't beat up the young boys. <laughs> so Bubba said it wasn't a matter of beating someone up. It was a case of educating someone in a physical manner. That's a great Johnny Ace you do. Well, thank you. Well, I've I've had to hear it a lot. Um, and Bubba added that if someone is not getting it and putting lives in danger in the ring, they may have to be smacked around a little bit, and there was nothing wrong with it. And uh, But Rene Dupree, in a postscript, says has been previously open about his perceived negative treatment in WWE. He's also said that The Undertaker had ordered talent to piss and shit in his bag. Is that true? I didn't hear that. <laughs> I don't know that anybody had to be ordered to do it. I, it might have been, hey, Taker, could How we that do happen? this? I mean, it's always been said he's a locker room leader, and whenever there's wrestlers court, he's the judge. So how does it work? Does he call the... People over, does he summon them and say, it is now time for a shit and piss mission? You all must do it. If you say no, 
Bubba Ray will beat you up in the back. <laughs> no, <laughs> How does it work? No, well, the wrestler's court, the the judgments were made off times to fit the crime or just, a, you know, it's a token judgment of some, if, if somebody was accused of not furnishing the beer or the young guy wasn't respectful enough in carrying the bags, he had to buy the bus a case of beer. Or if somebody cock blocked at the bar, then he had to buy some, the, the bus a case of beer or whatever. Those were the official judgments. I doubt very seriously if Undertaker came in the building one day and decided, you know what? Somebody needs to piss in that motherfucker's bag and told people to do it. I would think that more of it was that a bunch of people came to the building that day and said, we'd like to piss and shit in this guy's bag. Undertaker, should we? And after they explained their reasoning, he probably said, yeah, I think you should. Now that I can believe happened. I'm not saying any of it did, but that I could believe. Undertaker, there's another candidate to shit and piss at the door. I know three other people are doing it, but this guy really wants to do it too. Yeah. <laughs> Can you please let him in? You know, I guess my thing is just... And sometimes people have bashful bowels and you've got to call in a fucking stunt shitter or a pinch pisser. But you know who never had that problem? Johnny Valentine. That's true. Hey, you know, some guys did have the talent. They could conjure something up just on the, on the sperm of the moment. What I was going to say is I get the point about it being disrespectful to the business. And I get every part of it. Although it's important to remember, Bubba Ray didn't come up in the territories. It came up in ECW. I could see wanting to hit the fucking guy for saying that, but even in 2003, 2004, you can't fucking do that. I mean, that's just, <laughs> anyone knows that. You can't be slapping people around for I no don't reason. Know. Well, it's not, at least it wasn't the first time that Johnny had to deal with shit like that. You should have sued. Hey, there's no <laughs> consistency here. Yeah. Look what happened to me. What happened to him? He's beating up guys right there in front of everybody. I don't know. Actually, I got to better into the deal. I didn't have to deal with him anymore after that. Bubba still had to put up with him. See, I think that's just the period of time where, you know, Sylvain Grenier is an interesting example because that was someone who was just, Pat Patterson was friends with him and that was the reason he was where he was. It was because of his friendship with Pat. But that was kind of the beginning of the- And not in that way, by the I way. I wasn't saying that. I w and I wasn't saying that. Well, um, some people would read that into it. I he would- I encourage everyone the, to read the book that Bertrand Bear wrote with me. Actually, the French-Canadian bond is even stronger than the bond of, you know, like-minded sexual mores or tastes or whatever the case may be. Because those French-Canadians will go to bat for each other every time, whether they're any good or not. But that's kind of the beginning of that period, really, or, you know, I guess as it was getting going of just people who all of a sudden started showing up. They had no wrestling background, really. They maybe were rushed to TV. People who didn't belong, and that's beyond the cultural changes in the world and popular culture. That was the big cultural change in wrestling, in, in, at least in WWE, was you started getting all these outsiders coming in, and then younger people, and then all of a sudden, and I'm not saying it's completely wrong, because I, you know, I don't want to romanticize, you know, hey, I just started slapping you know, Sylvain Grenier around. <laughs> but there was no place for that anymore. All of a sudden, if you had that mindset, you're a complete dinosaur back there because look at what it, it, WWE, it, it's guys who came off the indies and it's people who they've somehow found and talked into being wrestlers. Or you can say it like this. Wrestling started going downhill when they stopped slapping the fucking rookies around and kept fucking up. <laughs> 
they, they, they never learned and they continued to fuck up. And here we go. There's a lot of people in the business that need slapped around today. What did Grenier do? Did he say anything about what the reaction was or anything there no. on what you're reading? But no, not in, in what I'm reading. And I would imagine he was fairly quiet about it also <laughs> with Bubba and Devon standing there. How did that team survive? I mean, and again, I'm not justifying anything, but knowing what everyone felt about Rene Dupree, fair or unfair. And if that's his partner's mindset, how did they survive two minutes? How did they survive longer than the dicks, than the Tolans did up there? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Because the dicks weren't actually really dicks. Except to each they other. nice guys. Except, Except to each other. Yeah, they couldn't stand each other. Kick the shit out of each other in the locker room. <laughs> I, I liked both of them. I mean, it, 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 Chad, Tank, Tank Toland was a fucking great talent. And he was another guy that was run out of my If they had Tank Toland in AEW right now, he would be the fucking AEW champion. They would love that guy. He could do every fucking thing. I know you hate hearing it. But I got to say, my favorite period of OVW is when you had the Tolans and the Heartbreakers and Eminem. It was just, it was so much fun. It was the most fun period. Why would I hate hearing that? Because I thought you would be upset that I didn't pick like 2001 and I didn't pick different other no, periods God. as being my favorite OVW no, period. 2001, we were still in the old building. So. Well, you get my point. Yeah. But anyway, speaking of the old developmental program where people used to get slapped if they fucked up, now they got a developmental program where they all get a trophy, and <laughs> boy, oh boy, howdy, NXT, real quick. Oh, come on, you're still watching quick. it? How are you watching this? Because here's the thing. I had said I want to keep up on my boy Steiner, right? And I want to see what's going on. So I heard that Steiner did a promo and I started watching this thing and I actually saw two good things and a couple of goofy things. So just real quick thoughts on speed search, by the way, on the on-screen speed search, the whole show looks like a video of a kaleidoscope. When you had a fucking, <laughs> when you were a kid, you had that you'd look in the thing like the pirate's gland, you'd turn the, the colors and it the whole thing can't see any matches on speed sir just the kaleidoscope but it looks better that way uh i will say this jane wayne gacy of toxic attraction has the best heel facials of any woman in the in the business on her entrance la knight worked with odyssey jones and you know i've been high on odyssey jones right and la knight yeah that sounds good we were just talking about la knight would have been perfect for ohio valley wrestling television and I'm not talking like he needs to be in developmental. I'm talking about he's a classic worker. I was thinking it, it, he makes a green guy look like a million bucks. He bumped like a Super Bowl. He was aggressive and heelish on his heat. He's perpetual motion. He led the perfect match for Odyssey Jones. He put on a clinic. I would have loved to have had a guy like that to work with guys like Basham and Densmore and Damager and Conway and, and uh, all those guys. Um, Odyssey Jones made a great comeback and then up pops Andre Chase in his collegiate cheerleading outfit and distracted Odyssey and spoiled the match and LA Knight hit his finish one, two, three, but it was a great match with a black finish. Blech. And then Von Wagner did a, did an interview and I know he's the son of Wayne Bloom. And so he's got, you know, the second generation 
bloodline in him, but he's now not only reciting lines that they give him, but apparently they've told him to refer to himself in the third person. Because he did a promo in a monotone voice where he referred to himself, Von Wagner took an opportunity. And also with his pronounced brow and forehead, he looks like a Gorn. Can you picture this? (laughs) He looks like a Gorn. Anyway. Champa was in the ring for a promo. And on October 26th, they're going to have Halloween Havoc on NXT on USA. That's a Tuesday night. And he mentioned the champ needed an opponent who has the balls to come out and try to take the title away from Tommaso Champa. And guess whose music played? <laughs> Braun Breaker. Oh, okay, good. They're not even attempting to act like any of this is in any way impromptu or not pre-planned or not down to the last second choreographed and planned out on everything that they did on, on this show that I saw the the music cue is perfect it's like the 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 guys now will say their the music cue line and then turn and look at the entrance way and wait for the music to play <clears throat> so anyway um Steiner came in with a microphone and Everything about him that is short in experience and smoothness, he makes up for in aggression and emotion. And he and you, you, it's like Rick Steiner. Was Rick Steiner was Louisiana his first territory? Yeah, eighty-five. He got there at the end of eighty-five. He was Rob Rex Steiner, and then they just yep. made it Rick Steiner by the beginning of eighty-six. But who who trained him, or do we even know? Oh, I you know, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. But that was his first territory. And he fit, it was the same thing. He wasn't smooth. He was so green, but his strength and his athletic ability and the explosiveness and the, just the oomph that he had made up for it. And then he was a quick learner. In this promo, Champa told the story. Champa said all the hard parts so Steiner could just be himself. And the challenge was accepted for October 26th. We got to watch that show for that match. But, you know, Rick Steiner, even though he started in Mid-South Wrestling, that was that was like starting in pro wrestling in a the strictest military school in the world. So he got it and got it quick. But it was still a territory, and he was still on local television, and there were still stars to carry the show. Are they rushing poor old Rex Steiner here? He's on national TV already. They're obviously going to put this belt on him. If they don't do it in the first match, they're going to do it quicker than sooner. Is this too much? Even for a guy with this much, is it, is it unfair to Rex Steiner to have him in this position where you're seeing him from scratch on national television? The people who don't watch the TV show can see the video anytime they want. He's learning on the job. They're pushing him down our throats. It it he doesn't have a bad haircut like Rocky did, so it might not be die Rocky die. But is it fair to this guy as the tremendous talent he's going to be? It may not be fair, but it also may work out. Uh, was it fair to Kurt Angle? 
to the rush Kirk, him as fast as he did. He was, got he was to go great. To Memphis for six months. I know. We haven't seen what this guy's been doing, and I'm not comparing an actual territory or an actual television show or a promotion like Memphis to whatever's going on behind closed doors in that weird factory of theirs. Yeah, but if he has, if he hadn't been out at the goddamn Covington, Tennessee County Fair doing 20 minutes to see what works in front of human beings, he can't get experience. He can just he can just do repetition of moves. I don't disagree with you. And unfortunately, I think these are some of the realities of the WWE and the WWE way. If he had gone and worked the Indies, it's not perfect. It's not the territories, but he would have gotten that experience and would have been working in front of different people. But instead, he's just been in this one system. Well, but and it might not even have to be the Indies if they were still able to run shows. And now that People are able to run shows and attend shows. Should they have hidden him a little bit for a couple months just to put him out there in front of people? I don't know. Well, on the other hand. But I, I could see Vince seeing him going, oh, my God, here we go. Yeah. Should the Mets have called up Dwight Gooden in 84 or should they have said he's 19? We have to wait. On the other hand, he's the one thing we're talking about with this show. If I knew who fucking Dwight Gooden was, I'd have a goddamn opinion on that. But uh, anyway, I'm I'm afraid I, I'm afraid they're rushing him. It's not fair, but I think you know, like you said, he'll probably be good regardless. But um, he's got intensity that no one else there has. It's natural. Yeah. It's genetic. <laughs> it's it's genetic. Well, and also he's watched his father and uncle act like wrestlers for I would assume all of his life. And see, that's the thing, Scott. A lot of people forget that Scott didn't just show up in WCW. Scott had been working in, uh, in Michigan and Ohio for what? The great Wojo who took over for. He worked for Bruiser at the very end. Well, it, well was it was it even at that point Bruiser? Bruiser was still was, the promoter, I believe, but Wojo was the world champion. Well, that's but, but that's why I'm saying Bruiser was living down in fucking Florida probably at that time. And, and you know, Spike Huber or somebody was running shit. I don't know. But the point is, yes, he worked small towns in Michigan and Ohio and Indiana and worked with the great Wojo, who was uh, Bruiser's last, I get one of the last champions. And, and went then, to Memphis, yeah. And then got a chance to go to Memphis and before he showed up in WCW. So anyway, we'll see what happens here. And then just real quickly, Tony D'Angelo, Tony D'Angelo, however you say it in Italian. He's been doing the promos, right? on the docks and on the street and he's it, he is definitely straight out of a 90s movie gimmick that Vince McMahon would love right so i he wrestled and i said i got to see for this see for myself what's going on here <clears throat> the people decided i apparently much like they did with the question mark uh old josephus at the nwa tapings that they're going to get this guy over. And they started chanting for everything and overreacting to everything that they, that he did. Like he's a pet that they're going to fucking fuck with either that or everybody in the audience. He is personally politicked with to overreact and cheer and scream. He wrestles in a white wife beater and velour track pants. And he does the wise guy thing. And, He's not bad working the gimmick, but it was the most basic wrestling. They One of the replays of his moves was a shoulder tackle, a shoulder tackle off the ropes. Boom. They replayed that because that's really the highest impact thing he did. It's complete 90s WWF gimmick. 
but the fans have decided, well, we're, we're going to do something with this. So this, this could be interesting. And next week, just so you know, Lash Legend is going to spill some hot tea. Did she, she actually also, say that? Did she actually say yes, those words? Yes, yeah, she's also going to give Jane Cargill some competition for the greenest, most awkward <laughs> interviews <laughs> in wrestling. It was oh boy, she didn't have a show. She and Tony D'Angelo came in. Hey, you know, to get some eyes on your show, you ought to have me as a guest. Just saying, you know. And that was NXT. They have destroyed that show. I mean, there were other <laughs> things on it, but nothing, nothing you would care about. They have destroyed that show in, in four weeks. I'm trying to think of another example of a show just having a complete redo and it's awful. Not just wrestling, but any show that just all of a sudden, <laughs> hey, look, they're back for the next season. What the hell happened to this show? It sucks. It's completely different. I don't know what they're doing. It's it's uh, it's certainly a very WWF-ish vision of things. But, uh, you know, some of these programs, Brian, you want to watch them, you just can't stand to listen to them. And others, you can't stand to listen to them, but you might be able to watch them. But you know what I've found? I've found that from this point forward, we should watch what we want to watch and listen to what we want to listen to but they don't necessarily have to be the same thing. That's what I've figured out. You're just coming to this conclusion now? I'm just coming to this conclusion now. So here's what you need to do, folks. From now on, whenever NXT comes on your television, you need to queue up the dark side of the moon, the start of that, to the start of the NXT television program. And while you're watching NXT, listen to Dark Side of the Moon on your Raycon Everyday Earbuds. Have you done this before, Brian? I haven't, but I got a better idea. What about Dark Side of the Moon with Dark Side of the Ring? Well, no, because then if you've matched Dark Side of the Ring up with Dark Side of the Moon, then you're liable to go into orbit. Anyway, I don't know how to get out of that. I didn't know where you were coming from. <laughs> that but just sounds like a great idea to experiment and see when it says... The lunatic is in my head. Will be Bruiser Bedlam with his wide eyes? Like, what would be on the screen at that moment? I think it's a great idea. Actually, I was hoping that the the hurricane or the cyclone or the tornado or the storm would come and blow NXT all the way to fucking Oz. But anyway, folks, the Raycons, that's where we were going with this. <laughs> Damn it. Ah, you can always control the vibes in your head, if not the thoughts in your head or the brain in your head, with a pair of Raycon wireless earbuds in your ears. They look, feel, and sound better than ever. They've got an improved rubber oil look. You didn't know what that was, Brian, when we talked about it last week. That's that rubber that looks oily without feeling oily. You don't have to lube these things up, folks. No KY jelly to shove these bad boys in your ears. They've got the perfect in-ear fit because of the optimized gel tips and three new sound profiles to make sure that you're listening to things at their best with just the right amount of bass, as well as bluegill, crappie, and trout. There's the pure mode <laughs> where you can listen to podcasts, blues, instrumental, the balanced mode with podcast, rock, and heavy metal, the bass mode with tartar sauce. Hip-hop, 
EDM reggae music. Reggae. So, huh? Reggae. Well, you Reggie music? Reggie? Reggie music. <laughs> From Reggie. He's one of the stars on the WWF. He does the trampoline thing. There's the all-new awareness mode on these Raycons, folks, for when you need to listen to your surroundings. Let's say you're walking down the train tracks right in the middle, and you're listening to your That's favorite Led Zeppelin, Zeppelin album. <laughs> let's, let's not when, promote this idea. When suddenly <laughs> you say, you know what? Maybe Stairway to Heaven is preventing me from hearing an oncoming train. So you put it on awareness mode, and now you can hear the train is bearing down on you, and you know to get your fucking ass off the tracks. The Raycons also have a built-in <laughs> microphone, and you can take calls on your earbuds at the press of a button. So get your Raycons now. They come with a 45-day happiness guarantee, and they start at half the price of other premium audio brands right now. Jim Cornette experienced listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com. That's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N. Buyraycon.com slash J-C-E. Buyraycon.com slash J-C-E. Have I said this enough? Buyraycon.com slash J-C-E. 15% off. Don't get run over by a fucking train. Buy Raycon. Have you done Dark Side of the Moon with the Wizard of Oz? Yes, but you know there's controversy. Do you start it from the start of the movie or do you start it from the first color segment? Oh, I thought there was a clear cut start point at the start of the movie. No, not, not, I, the, not the beginning of the color. You start at the beginning of the color. Well, I started at the beginning of the color. It works either way. All right. Ted Turner would approve just going right past the black and white, right to the color. Well, there you go. I don't know why they did that anyway. Well, I guess actually that was shot in color. It's just Kansas is dirty. <laughs> anyway <laughs> well this uh past week's dark side of the ring episode was on your friend and mine and he was our friend johnny k9 bruiser bedlam and i'll i'll let you comment on this in a second but i just want to say for the record at the outset they went through the whole hour they talked to newspaper reporters they talked to a former police officer who was involved in the case and nobody still ever saw or had video of bruiser bedlam killing anybody his ex-wife not his ex-wife she's his ex-wife now because he passed away but his wife said that he never killed anybody he was just with the people who did these things and nobody has contradicted this yet and did you see when the the first what was it the first murder charge it was supposed to him and him and the other biker. They not only beat that, but the biker sued the city or the cops for malicious prosecution and won a settlement. Yeah. How big was that? So still, even this investigative report could not specifically conclude that Bruiser Bedlam ever killed anybody. And I, I feel vindicated over that, but, uh, I, it was a great show because a lot of these things, I, I had so many people on Twitter say that they'd never heard of Johnny K-9 or Bruiser Bedlam. And, you know, then they've just read the things that they've read in the, you know, on the site, the news sites and the accusations and et cetera. 
but uh, a lot of the footage, a lot of the stuff they had, a lot of the people that you heard from had not been heard from publicly before. What'd you think of the show? I think it may have been one of their best dark sides. I think it was one of the ones where everything kind of came together. The narrative worked. The storyline was pretty intact. Good voices. I thought, I'll put them over. I thought Lance Storm was great here. Yeah. I thought you were really good here. I wish Jericho would, I don't know, put something else on or just do something else. But he was all right here, I guess, in a sense. But he's a narrator, too, so it creates that weird dynamic. The reporters, I mean, despite what you say about them, not or maybe I should say notwithstanding what you say about them, not despite, I thought they were all great. It's nice to have credible people talking in one of these wrestling documentaries. Well, yeah, well, I didn't say they weren't credible. I just said nobody has still ever been able to document or present evidence that he was anything more than involved, but not the actual person who did these things. And who was the actor playing Bruiser Bedlam? Was he Bruiser Bedlam or the Iron Sheik in 1990? Who was that Boy, guy? I don't know. Whoever they found, I've got to, we got to talk to Evan and Jason about that to see whoever they found that looked that much like Bruiser, even in, in silhouette. That's because that's a hard visage to replicate. I liked seeing the footage from Knoxville from the, the match with Savage because, yeah. and I've mentioned this before years ago, and we've talked about Bruiser on the show. That was, it meant so much to him because here is, I mean, when he got there that night and he had always assumed as actually I did, I thought, you know, maybe we'll do some kind of DQ or something, but he had assumed from the time that he started doing the promos, we were starting building the match that he wasn't going to win, beat Randy Savage. Um, and when I, you know, when I told him, I said, Hey, Savage says he, he'll put you over. We're going to do the interference and distractions, blah, blah, blah. His eyes, the big eyes got even bigger. And that was, you know, it, it meant so much to him. That was the only time in his life he had been able to wrestle, you know, more prominent matches on independent shows and he'd done jobs for the WWF, but it was the only time in his career that he was figured in to a legitimate promotion with television and working with actual names and, and got a chance to do that. And it just, it thrilled him and he, he never forgot about it, but it brought up something else too, because you know, everybody talks these days about the dream matches, uh, that, well, we'll, we'll get to see Brian Danielson against twinkle toes or whatever. At that period of time in the United States, the, the matches that we were able to present in Smoky Mount Wrestling, the actual match so-and-so versus so-and-so may not have been a dream match in people's mind, but when we were able to put them together and people saw that it was possible, then they were, because in that match, you had uh, Bob Armstrong and Dory Funk Jr. obviously were the ones that that interfered. I tried to interfere on behalf of Bruiser and Bob Armstrong came out to stop me. And then Dory Funk Jr. was there because Bob was working with a program with the Funks. And Dory was able to shove Savage off the top when he was going for his elbow so the Bruiser could capitalize. But here we had the biggest drawing NWA World Heavyweight Champion of the 70s. The number two guy in the WWF of the 80s. Myself, who had been the top manager in WCW and NWA in the eighties bullet Bob, who was a 
Knoxville and a Southern wrestling legend, all of those people interacting that would never have crossed paths in any other place and time. And that was, that's, I think that's what I get a lot of feedback from the Smoky Mountain wrestling fans that they remember that fondly because they got to see such a variety. That's a pretty decent variety of not only talent from different organizations, but generations. That's one of and, the reasons uh, I always love the main event of the Night of Legends. Uh, it was so cool to be in the building for that, just because of it's just such a variety of people, not just in the match, but at ringside for that match. Well, and and for the people who don't have a copy of the Night of Legends DVD from JimCornette.com, and now it'll be a couple months before you can, <laughs> um, if you haven't already ordered it, the main event was Bruiser Bedlam and Dory and Terry Funk with myself in the corner against Bullet Bob Armstrong, Tracy Smothers, and Road Warrior Hawk with Ron Wright in their corner. And we hit all the generations. We hit, uh, you know, the, the names. We hit the current guy. Tracy was, at that point, our top regular baby face. Bullet Bob, of course, was the, the icon. The Funk Brothers need no introduction. Bruiser was my top single heel at the time. Road Warrior Hawk was brought in to team with the baby faces because of his history with me at the scaffold match. And me against Ron Wright. See, you, you had the wrestling business. That was 1994, and Ron Wright had started in, what, 1956. So you had 40 years of the wrestling business represented in that match with guys that were ranged in age from Ron was in his sixties and, and Tracy was barely 30. So those were cool. But anyway, back to the dark side episode, Lance storm, you mentioned he was, did a very good job, but also Lance of all people, not known as an old softy necessarily, but he teared up and kind of broke up talking about bruiser. and. That, I think, indicated what most of the guys in the locker room and that came in contact with, with him thought about him. Is that you just, you know, the shock and the awe, and we all said that, I know I said a bunch of that that was trimmed out that we just couldn't believe it, we couldn't reconcile that this guy that we knew could be involved in all that other stuff. It was It was a double life, but for Lance to get choked up about somebody and and Lance does have a pretty strong moral compass uh so even if he can't justify or you know excuse some of the things that Bruiser was involved in that's still that's the kind of reaction that you get cuz that's the kind of impact or impression that the guy made on you was you you kind of choke up when you think about him coming to a, a bad end i've it, i've always just been gobsmacked because as we've mentioned, besides the tattoo and him saying he'd been in jail, we didn't know. And, and when he was in Smoky Mountain, this major stuff had not occurred, but we didn't know about the the motorcycle gangs or, or anything else or that he was, you know, I felt bad because I couldn't pay him any better. And I'm like, he's driving all the way down here for this. And I know he wants to catch a break, but God, I feel bad. I didn't know he was making 20 and 30 grand in 20 minutes collecting money or selling weed or whatever. No, what he, he could have probably shit. I should have asked Bruiser to be an investor. And so can you imagine <laughs> investors, Rick Rubin and Johnny K9? 
One's making hits and the other one's doing them. You know, I I do want to say real quick, I did find it interesting whenever they talked to the reporters or they had a real-time news report from when things were happening, they never used his real name. It's always Johnny Canine. Yeah. And I was surprised by that. I guess I thought, I don't know, I guess I thought they would have used his real name, but everyone knew him as Johnny Canine. Well, and the the local news there, especially, uh, but also his real name, and they they mentioned it, Eon, Eon, Ion, I O N, C R O I T E R U, I believe. But whatever the point, he told me that because at the time I was still I was running a wrestling territory, but it was still a halfway legitimate business. We reported things to the government and everything, and. But with him, I'd written because he was from Canada. And I said, You got any papers? He's, Oh, don't worry about it, Jimmy. And I wrote him a check the first week. I'm like, What is your name? And I've had to spell each letter individually. And and I'm like, Wait a minute. I said, If I write you this check, can you cash it? You know, you're going to Canada and you, you know, the paperwork is iffy or whatever. He said, Don't worry, Jimmy. I'll get it cashed. But then I think, as I remember, after the first couple of weeks, I just started giving him cash because I was like, well, this is a blah, blah, blah. But I'm just starting to think now, this was 1994. Would, at that time, Vince McMahon would have probably been the only person in the wrestling business that had actually started doing background checks before they booked somebody, right? Would WCW have started at that point? Maybe they had might have happened in i don't remember i was on the booking team in 1990 and i don't remember ever investigating anybody that flair wanted to bring in or we wanted to book or whatever was already there what do you think and remember it was after you they brought in art bar and that caused a big problem so how yes. much due diligence did they do there i mean actually i think the problem was they were aware now that i think of it Oli and heard were aware of everything and still booked them now that yeah. i think of it yeah i don't know when background checks vince probably started it as soon as David Schultz threatened him the first time. Well, I, th- I think I think they <laughs> I think they started in the eighties when they started going overseas. Because before, if you were a wrestler and you went to Japan or went to anywhere out of the country, you were going for the promoter in that country. And as long as you could get there, you know, they didn't fucking care, right? But uh Vince was the first one that was an American promoter that was running overseas tours. And, you know, it was the old Canada thing. Cause I remember even when I got there in 1993 and I started seeing the talent rosters, you know, i even before I got on the creative team, I, every once in a while I'd see some paperwork and they would have their talent roster would have guys names with no Canada next to it. Like Bigelow, Bam Bam Bigelow. And that was because Canada is the hardest country in the world to get into for whatever reason. You can go to the UK in 30 seconds through customs. You can go to, you know, a war-torn Cambodia, but you can't get in fucking Canada. And by the way, where's safer than Canada? It seems like they're doing it right. Well, you know, either either that or, you know, it seems like, what the fuck? It, it doesn't seem like a lot of troublemakers want to go to Canada to begin with. Um, But anyway... uh. So that was, that is if you had, I don't know, spitting on the sidewalk on your record, you couldn't go to Canada. But guys were still going to Japan, still going to the United Kingdom, still going to Germany, wherever, couldn't go to Canada. But, um, I, so I would imagine Vince was the first one to do background checks, but also it wasn't, 
I'm trying to think before the internet and all this shit, could you actually do a background check on somebody without calling the FBI or a, a police department? And then that's how guys used to skip lawsuits and bullshit they'd get into in the territories because before there was a national computer system. And even after there was one, when it was primarily we're on the lookout for America's most wanted, we're not worried about a fucking wrestler that, you know, skipped town because he's getting sued for cracking somebody over the head, whatever. You couldn't find people. You didn't know what the fuck. And I've mentioned before, Grizzly Smith, everybody going, oh, geez. Why didn't, you know, they say something about his 13-year-old wife? Because he never brought his wife to the fucking matches. You didn't see people's families back then either. There was no Facebook for him to get on or no Twitter for him to make tweets from complaining about their husband's booking. So if if a guy didn't invite you to his house or bring his wife to the matches, which, as we mentioned, was almost universally a no-no, especially for the heels, because then she'd be assaulted by the fans, or from the baby faces, because then they'd see the baby faces fucking around on him. Um, you didn't know who fucking anybody's family was. Right. So all you might hear a little murmur every once in a while of something, but there was no way to find out. There was no way to do background checks. And if they had done background checks on wrestlers, I would venture to guess that half the fucking famous names in the history of the business probably wouldn't have got booked. But anyway, it was an interesting look and there, and there wasn't, there was probably less wrestling in this because he actually did less wrestling. That was the whole point of the thing that it was sort of like, this was a sideline that he dreamed of success in, but he never actually got the chance to make it. And he's more notorious for his outside the ring activities now, especially in Ontario, I guess, where they know him by his gimmick name. Hey, can I ask you a question? I wish you would. Having seen this and having heard from his wife, had you ever talked to her or met her at any point? Yeah. Well, at one point, I believe, if I am not mistaken, that she and maybe a friend or two of hers had come down with him, maybe for the Night of Legends, maybe for the big show or something like that, that, you know, was really important to him. I think I have a memory of meeting her once. My question was going to be, despite the fact that when you told him you were finishing him up, he was very happy and seemed to be okay with it. What did you think when you heard her say how it really did kind of deject him that he was back where he was working on those small shows? And Well, and I did. I felt bad. And, you know, and here's the thing. We'd gone through pretty much everything he could do with, you know, with everybody else that I had. It, we had to change the faces up, but I didn't. I always, you know, I tried to call obviously I didn't try to call I did call Randy Hales but honestly Bruiser wasn't gonna fucking drive to Memphis every which was even farther every fucking weekend for probably for less money than I was giving him and there wasn't really a spot there and it was in 1996 some sometime in the summer of 96 I think I did I was able to talk him into giving him a dark match in the WWF and giving him a tryout at one of the TV tapings. And they even let me go out and manage him. So it wouldn't just be like, you know, just the regular dark match with nobody. I can't remember who he worked with. Um, it wasn't like they, you know, that Chris Benoit tryout match where Owen Hart said, I'll work with him. You know, it was some guy he could beat up and beat. 
Um, it was okay if I, because I knew him, I could see what I could do with him and, and, you know, et cetera. But because they didn't know him and that's the only time they'd seen him, it wasn't that great. It wouldn't blow away. And so, you know, nothing happened, but was it 90, was it 96 or was it, it was 95 because I wasn't on the booking committee yet. I just, I would talk them into giving him a tryout and they, they set that up. So it was 95. And, you know, we waited on that for a little while, but uh, they they weren't going to do it. So was there any reason they stopped using him other than they stopped taping TV in Ontario? Pretty much. I think that's it. It's just that they weren't close to him anymore. And they always just used guys that were that were close around those tapings. Looking back now and knowing how things were around that period of time and how things would turn out. Is there any way a Bruiser Bedlam babyface turn would have worked in late 94? <laughs> no, in Smoky Mountain Wrestling? Yeah. No. <laughs> Come on. Uh, it, you know, I mean. And I'm not saying I wanted to see him versus Killer Kyle. No, I am not. No. Um, I mean, you know, if if you. He could have in some point become a gimmick babyface, I guess, but. Is still remember he had never done promos before, so he was new on the promos. It was easier for him to do a little stuff and have me there to get some heat for him also while he got his feet wet with talking on television. But I don't know that he would have fit the 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 picture as as a gimmick babyface at that point in time with the the talent roster and etc. Was it the same thing with Al Snow? Now that I think how many guys did you use? who had actually been in the business for over a decade, but never really had done promos. I'm trying to think of where he would have done promos. Um, no, what? And, 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 you know, Al was the same thing. Al had done TV for the Pafos in 1982. But not promos. And no, not promos, just TV jobs. And that's the last TV he had done until 1994 when I brought him to Smoky Mountain. So he was a 12-year overnight success. Back to uh, Dark Side. Any other big revelations to you about Johnny K-9 that you didn't know? Anything that really surprised you? Well, yeah, the the fucking talk about him making 20 or 30 grand in 20 minutes or having $100,000 <laughs> worth of fucking, you know, weed on the kitchen table. 100 pounds of weed. 100 pounds know, of weed. Whatever the case. I'm like, Jesus Christ, again, I should have asked him to be the fucking financial backer. I didn't realize, you know, who we were dealing with. They were, well, I guess it was Canadian money, though. So... Now it's down to $67.42. For so many years, you've talked about him showing up in the Jeep with no shirt on in the winter. I saw him like that in the summer, but he was doing it in the cold weather, too. Yeah. Were you surprised to actually hear his wife tell the same story from her side, that he left there that way? Did you think, in any way, did you think, oh, maybe he got to Ohio and took off his no. jacket? No, we asked him, and he told us, and we had no reason not to believe you. <laughs> What the fuck? No, we didn't think he stopped halfway and changed clothes. And that that was the deal of the open air Jeep, no shirt on, flip flops and baggy shorts. No matter what the weather was, it was, you know, and every picture you saw of him, he's not wearing a shirt. But the hat, I guess, because his head got cold because it was bald. But anyway. Another one of those people that you only meet in the wrestling business. And next week is going to be another one, Luna Vachon, who I just thought the world of and thought she was, she was a great talent, a great person. I'll be interested to see what goes on there. They've got Gangrel. They've got uh, uh, Medusa, some people that 
knew her well, so we'll we'll see how that turns out. But that's next week on Vice Thursday nights, nine o'clock Eastern. That's right. I missed it and, last week because I thought it was ten o'clock, and this week I got it right. I think it used to be ten o'clock. That's what I thought too. Yeah, that's what I thought. Well, that's because they got to put that ripoff show, the dark side of plumbing or whatever, on afterwards. <laughs> uh, but in this case. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's what they've been doing a ripoff show. It's not Evan and Jason doing the dark side of all these other things they got on Vice now. They're just trying to capitalize on Evan and Jason's success with the high ratings. Well, I knew they were doing it, but the dark side of plumbing is just such an interesting concept. Well, it's about as fucking interesting as the rest of the shit that dark side of football, dark side of the 90s. Football apparently didn't have a, a very dark side. Either that or it's not very interesting to hear these people tell it. I tried to watch one of them. Uh, but there was another program after Dark Side of the Ring this past week on Vice, which was a one-shot TV special, and we said we were going to watch it because it was the MLW Fightland show where Jacob Fatu and Alexander Hammerstone had the... That's been their big match that they've been building in MLW for, God, I don't know how long, a year, year and a half now or whatever, and... I like both those guys from working with them back in 2019. And I thought, well, I'm going to see what they put together. And so we watched that and I have thoughts and I wanted, I really wanted to lie. I'm not saying I didn't like the match. I like both those guys and I like their match, but boy, it was a nice picture, but the frame was lacking the ambiance, the atmosphere, um, it didn't help them at all that they were in the ECW arena or what do they call it now? The 2300 arena in Philadelphia. It didn't help. I know they've redone the place and they've supposedly put in a lot of improvements and there's absolutely no way that you could have disimproved that building. Um, a tornado went through there one time and did $6 million worth of improvements. That is the, worst building for wrestling that I've ever been in in my life. That's the worst building I've ever been in in my life in a major city. Uh, that shithole building in Laranja, Louisiana was worse than this one, but uh, you would expect that from Laranja, Louisiana. But in an actual city, that building, the overflowing toilets and the bathroom, the lack of air conditioning, the not slum neighborhood, but literally crime ridden neighborhood. It, it's, it's not far from downtown Philadelphia and all the roads to the building are not even paved, or at least as of 10 years ago, when ring of honor was doing TV in that shithole, they weren't, you find needles and drug paraphernalia out in the parking lot in the back of the building. And that's before the wrestlers get there. Uh, I've never hated a place worse in my life to go into than that building. And so they're in Philadelphia and it's all mostly flat seating. It doesn't look like an arena. The crowd has seen everything in the world there and there's not many of them. It was just a blase atmosphere. And honestly, and I've worked on that program and that's why, that's why I was going to say I did Never did Philadelphia, but I did color commentary for them in Chicago twice, in New York, two different shows, and in Milwaukee. And Milwaukee was a disaster because the building was a shithole and, and they didn't do a proper site survey. New York was what New York is. It's a small little place, but Chicago 
and I talked about this at the time on the podcast, was a real arena, one of those old-fashioned arenas that seated about 2,000 people that in the in the 50s, in the Fred Kohler days, it was one of the places in Chicagoland that had regular small wrestling shows with one or two of the stars and some of the local guys, like the Rainbow Arena and the Marigold Arena. They packed the place. It looked good on television because it was real bleachers going up instead of a flat building like most independent wrestling takes place these days. Half or more of the audience, English was a second language. They were Hispanic, which is why they had a heavy Lucha influence on the show. But those people made noise and they were a crazy audience. And the atmosphere of this taping from Rich Bikini, who I enjoyed working with and who does a great job and is a very underrated wrestling announcer. He and MSL did color, Mr. St. Laurent. And from the start, when they opened the program, the audio mix was dodgy on the announcer stand-up. They were in front of a green screen with a generic you know, logo background in front of them. They're in a building. They're there live. Do the live stand. I used to have a problem with, with when I was doing the, the color, they wouldn't do because they were shooting four episodes in the same night, but they wouldn't do individual opens with the announcers in the, in the people in the arena in real time. So it felt like that we'd do them pre tapes and standing up in front of a green screen. And it, it took part of the live aspect out of it. And I'm telling you all the things that I thought were wrong with the show so everybody doesn't say I sugarcoat anything, and then I'm going to get to what I liked. And then they go to the opening match, and it's a four-way, and immediately they're doing everything that every other wrestling promotion does, but the TV show production doesn't look as good. And that's where I... I couldn't believe they didn't do an entire one-hour special on this match and have locker room interviews and have a lengthy history piece and even a music video. Does anybody do those these days where they set some highlights to a decent song and make it build up your two biggest names and make it look different. Instead, we started with a four way for this was for what was it for? Fuck. I even forgot. It was, it was for a one of the belts. It was for a title. For one of the belts. There were no ring intros or entrances. They just started off in the ring. Everybody shook hands with Tajiri, who looks like a middle-aged school janitor. Because <laughs> Everyone in Japan you associate with a school for some reason. No, okay, a middle-aged fucking gas station janitor. That's better. He looks like a middle-aged janitor who would get a job janitoring anywhere. You got Myron Reed, a guy named Arez, a guy named Aramis, and Tajiri. And I understand why they use the luchadors, because they have a heavily Hispanic audience. And they're on BN Sports, which caters to the Hispanic audience. Do you need, just because Tajiri, apparently he didn't mean much in Philadelphia, because they weren't beating the door down with axes to get in this building, because Tajiri was on the card. How old would Tajiri be now since he was over with the ECW audience 24 and 25 years ago? He is 51 years old. Exactly. A four-way 
with bullshit, phony choreography like every other four-way from every other company, a lousy atmosphere in a shithole building, it looks low rent, and the people weren't with it, and did you see the filthy floor? That the building can neither paint their floor nor can MLW roll out some fucking carpet for a network television, cable television, national cable television program. So this was every indie four-way match. Sloppy work that they tried to make up for with umpteen dives out of the ring and no story and just a complete mess. And that was the first 15, 20 minutes of the show. I don't know what their talent roster is like right now, but if they had a good single match or tag match with guys that could work, I would have loved to have seen that because this match just made it look like any other wrestling promotion today doing nothing different with guys doing sloppy moves for no reason and it wouldn't end and it was low budget. And I know not everybody has Tony Khan's money so they can do this big time production, but don't put low budget shit in the ring when you're shooting at low budget. The OVW TV show that I used to do was low budget and we knew that, but we put good shit in the ring. So you couldn't fucking tell. I tried to do the same thing with ring of honor when they gave us very little budget. And then Tajiri won over all of their, I guess their regular guys and everybody that's not eligible for AARP Tajiri won the match. So if you have any thoughts, you can give them, but I'm not even really asking you to chip in on this. Cause why? I started dozing off cause it was on right after dark side. I figured let me get this all out of the way now. No longer we are going to record today, but I started dozing off. And then the stay awake, I started doing stuff on my computer with it on in the background, looking at it back and forth. It wasn't a match. I like not a style. I like sick of four ways. The show opened with a fucking four way. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just not for me. I agree with you. I tuned in to watch one match. Don't force feed me something else if I'm there for that and you're using this as your one big chance to get some exposure because MLW has very little exposure other than, you know, I guess, other than the PR. <laughs> they have no exposure yeah. whatsoever. I would have made this whole thing about Hammerstone and Fatu. Who are they? Why are they important? How did they win their belts? How dominant have they been? Yeah. Instead, it was just all of a sudden, it's time for this match. Well, they actually could have done both. They could have done what you said. Who are they? Why are they dominant? How did they win their belts, etc.? Personality, interviews, and and still had another match on because the next segment, I swear to God, I thought we were listening to a fan's podcast because they did a halftime show. And again, I know the concept that they were selling was big fights and big news, right? And that's one thing I love about MLW. I love their terminology. And Court Bauer is behind this. Oh, this is break. no, seriously, he is. <laughs> I love the no, I love the terminology. <laughs> League officials, fight schedule, okay. sporting phrases, tale of the tapes. Okay, you know, in terms of on-air phrases that he uses, absolutely. I will give you that. Yes, and not just I'm not courts behind it, but I'm saying that the, that the announcers use it, the the graphics, and that it is a a sporting feel of a show. They do that right, but then 
instead of presenting, uh, like I said, maybe a match that you could get into one talent who you could put over before you go to the main event, instead of this halftime show where they're doing wrestling news from around the world, that's where they could have done the background on Hammerstone and Fatuit, etc. Because what their halftime show was to present big news in the world of wrestling. Okay, I've heard this girl's... I haven't ever heard this girl's name. I've seen this girl's name written. She does interviews. I guess she started as a... a girl that did interviews on the internet. And now some wrestling promotions have hired her. I've seen it written, but I've never heard it pronounced. So I thought her name was Alicia Atout. A-T-O-U-T. That's what I thought, too. She introduced herself as... Alicia Atout. And I couldn't stop laughing. I don't know why it struck me so fucking sideways funny, but Alicia Atout. And maybe she's Canadian, as somebody well, mentioned. I don't know. Before you disparage her any further, I want to say I thought she was great. She's really good. She I was didn't really say good she was role. bad. It just tickled yeah. me about Atout. Alicia Atout. But she had a panel with her who I wrote down their names as she introduced them because no one has ever heard of these people ever before. Raj Giri, R-A-J-G-I-R-I, Andreas Hale, and Emilio Sparks were her panel. Apparently, they do fan podcasts about wrestling. And they were there on the, on the panel in studio, but via satellite... <laughs> They had none other satellite than, un <laughs> than Uncle Dave Meltzer's it disembodied floating head. <laughs> because the, sir, the shot was from his collar to the top of his head. It was a giant close-up that they would go to intermittently. But I said, for who are these people? This was this had to be, it seemed like a 20-minute segment. It had to be 10 minutes. But it's does any wrestling fan want to hear other fans talk about wrestling these are hosts of fan podcasts right they've never been involved in the wrestling industry except for uncle dave who's his own wrestling industry but the other ones and then they're not talking about mlw this is their first and as we know so far only hour of national cable television to do this show, and they put in 10 minutes of news on other companies. Alicia Atout asked the panel about whether they thought the WWE is going to be for sale. And they go to Dave, who shaved with a broken bottle, apparently. <laughs> he got a prison shave with the fucking... Somebody sharpened the edge of a shiv and, and held the fucking bedpan up in front of him so he could see a, re a reflection to where he could fucking take the shiv and scrape his face. Either that or he, he had gig marks, but he's getting juice upside down. I don't know. <laughs> I just almost and, spit my drink out. I'm sorry that. if I'm making you waste your beverages here. <laughs> but each of the unknown experts weighed in on whether the WWE is for sale. And I wrote, why are they talking about another company? Why do they think people want to hear these unknown people's opinions? Why are they wasting their national cable time? Then they talked about who AEW might sign next. 
And I wrote, no one on this panel's opinion is worth shit. Who are they? Watch, Watch the next match. That should be the answer. Watch what? the next match. <laughs> <laughs> we can only hope. So they spent 10 minutes of their national TV debut with four marks talking about other companies and Dave Meltzer popping in for random remarks with a bloody face. And then the last of the segment, they spent marking out over how great Will Osprey is and didn't show a goddamn lick of video of how great Will Osprey is. Okay. I so believe he's coming to MLW and they couldn't get... They couldn't license footage in time, would be my guess. Goddamn, nobody has ever shot home video of him wrestling anywhere that would have been better than these four unknown people speaking about how great he is? I fell asleep shortly after Dave's appearance, because I, I hate to say this, but I fell asleep. My last thoughts were, I don't think Dave knows how to shave. <laughs> and then my next thought was, I know how I shave, and I know how... Sometimes you want to be meticulous and get things done. And I can't see Dave being a relaxed shaver. I could just see him like attacking his face with the blade. I can't see him standing there and like, oh, quickly, quickly have to get yeah. this done. And it just looked like he cut off half his chin. <laughs> I don't know what happened. <laughs> but that's when I fell asleep. That's when I fell asleep. And I rejoined the broadcast the next morning. All right. Well, now I figured only- just to let you know, I figured. I'm really getting tired. I want to see this main event. I I literally want to see this match. If I go to bed, if I just embrace the sleep, tomorrow I'll be fresh and I'll get to watch this big main event. I didn't realize that the crowd still wouldn't be fresh when I watched it, but yeah. I actually stayed up and watched it as it happened and then caught up on Roads to the Rotten the next morning. But anyway, um, on this television program, after the fans talking about other companies business then a guy in a horror movie mask and his stooges went into a room and started fighting with a bunch of people and a guy in a lucha mask closed the door behind all these people and flipped the deadbolt and then the actor from lucha underground whatever his fucking name was said something about we're not going to have anybody spoil the title match tonight so basically they've locked all the people who could interfere in the title match in a room unbeknownst to the people locked in the room because they're fighting (laughs) so it's going to be fair they're going to keep it fair because everybody's locked in a room in the back number one i've been in that building you can put your foot through any wall in that place without even trying hard and secondly I wrote, they're making it as hard as possible for me to want to watch this main event. That's the match I want to see. What's going on in the room? Why did they have to gimmick this up further? I and, missed and this. Put that, the, yes, and it was completely unbelievable. The way it was worse than when they fucking locked the Japanese guys in the goddamn dressing room on the Clash of Champions in Cleveland. What? I don't even think it was them, was it? It was going to be the Road Warriors in Tenru. Did they lock Sting, the JYD, and Michael Hayes? Was that who Yeah, whoever it was, they <laughs> locked up in the locker room in Cleveland. Anyway, so then finally we get the match, and it's no disqualification. They still had to gimmick it up, um, and it, it they didn't really need to, but I've, I'll accept it in this because both, the, both these guys, Hammerstone has been a heel, or at least he was when I was there. 
And I believe this is a, a kind of a heel-heel matchup, but Hammerstone is the nominal babyface because Fatu is a monster. And Joseph Samael came out with Fatu, the, 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 the almighty sheik, uh, who was working with him when I was there. I don't know who the guy in the horror movie mask was. They stuck him in the Contra group somehow. But it was title versus title. Hammerstone won the national openweight tournament. I called those matches. So that was two years ago. And I called the match where Fatu won the world title from Tom Lawler. So they've both been champions for a couple of years. And they're the by far the two most credible guys in the company. Um, I will say also the ring announcer, I don't know who he was, but he looked like a 80-year-old drunk homeless bum or a Professor Irwin Corey, if that might not be too old a <laughs> reference. I thought that was good, though, because I'm sick of these young smiling. Everyone's just so happy. I want an old crusty ring announcer. Well, this guy will comb your hair and, and button your fucking collar and, and tighten your tie up. Fucking Jesus Christ. He looked like goddamn. What was the professor's name in Back to the Future? Bill Apter. No. No, uh, Dr. Emmett Brown. <laughs> Bill Apter? <laughs> I was trying to pop you. Christopher <laughs> Lloyd is where I was going with him. Bill Apter. <laughs> he doesn't need to comb his hair. Anyway, um, both guys were out in tents. They had their game faces on. Hammerstone is jacked. Fatu is a beast. And for once, Fatu was a slightly smaller guy. Now, he's lost some some weight. He's he's dropped weight on purpose since I've seen him in person last. But not often would he be manhandled, but Hammerstone did it. And, well, you tell me what, Fatu's a natural. All his shit looks great, the way he moves, the aggression, the facials. And you can just tell, I've mentioned what an incredible worker he is. I said this on the program when I called this match and I brought it to his attention. He didn't even know he did it. But there was one time he was having a match on one of their TV tapings I did, and he went for that springboard moonsault. And as he was going over backwards, I swear to God, unconsciously, he saw that he was going to land on the fucking guy that he was moonsaulting. And he lifted a leg and landed on his left knee and his right foot with his knee up in just the perfect place so that he wouldn't potato the guy on the moonsault. And he didn't even realize he'd done it. He's just a natural worker, and the way he moves around the fucking ring is is impeccable. And it was a big man smash mouth match, you know, that that you don't see anymore because these guys take themselves seriously as badasses. Fatu did that moonsault off the guardrail barefoot onto Hammerstone, gave him a pile driver on the apron. I don't know why they did that one. But anyway, what'd you think of, of Fatu in this, this one, before we go any further with the etc. Well, he's great. He's a main event kind of guy. And he's, like you said, a natural in the ring. Moves really great. The spot with the moonsault off the, um, well, he was holding on to the pillar and he was standing on the barricade. While impressive, I didn't like the fact that Hammerstone standing there for 30 Hammerstone seconds. Hammerstone had to wait. Well, yeah. it wasn't 30 seconds. But well, you know what wait. I'm saying. It wasn't 30 yeah. seconds. It was it was probably five very, very long seconds. <laughs> <laughs> five very, very long one. But no. One Mississippi, dude. But other than that, which is a 
all things considered a minor criticism. I thought Fat 2 looked great. I thought Hammerstone looked great. These two guys look like main event guys. Well, and and then Fatu and I, you know, again, the no DQ, they didn't spend 20 years on the floor or just do everything, but they did rattle a little bit of furniture around. But Fatu did the coast to coast drop kick with the chair, which for his size is ridiculous. And then they were making a Hammerstone was making a big comeback because they were headed to another break spot and he hit a bicycle kick. And if you slow mode this, I don't know how he didn't break the ankle because he's 270 pounds and he came down on his left foot. And the reason why I hate those type of leaping kicks and shit is because in those wrestling rings and they're bouncing and guys are running on them. And when you land with all of your weight on one foot, either a knee or an ankle can go. And in this case, it was the ankle. He sprained it badly because it went sideways. You can go back and slow-mo it. I'm surprised it didn't snap. And he finished the rest of the match with that ankle. We've seen the pictures of it on social media since then, giant and black and blue or whatever. But they go to the break again. They come back, and then now Fatu's cooking, and he hit the Samoan drop, and he almost missed a senton off the top rope. He got him, but he almost overshot him. But then he hit a dive through the ropes like Darby Allen, where it's, he just launched himself and body blocked the guy. But instead of Darby's 150 pounds, this is 260 or whatever. Um, Hammerstone hit a dive at his size with a bad ankle and a missile drop kick off the top rope that knocked Fatu ass over tea kettle. They stood exhausted and wailed away at each other. And that's where it started going too long. Cause I like a good one, two, when it looks like a Rocky movie. But this spot has been prostituted, as we've talked about, where guys just stand and trade. And even though they were selling each one of them, and they went a little long. And then finally, uh, Joseph Samael interfered, and Fatu pulled out a table, slid it in the ring, and said he was actually strong enough to pull it out and slide it in and set it up. And put him... Th and This is the... Uh, this is a callback, as the kids say, because when he first debuted, they had Fatu beat the fuck out of a guy, and they were stretching him out, and he just jumped up out of nowhere and moonsaulted the, the, the guy on the stretcher, which I thought was a cool spot. But he puts Hammerstone on the table, covers him up with the flag. Eh, I, don't know, I know he's Contra, but he's also a beast. I don't know if he'd have that much eye for detail. But then he moonsaulted Hammerstone through it, and got a two count. Okay. I'll buy that. Are they selling? No. Hammerstone popped up right away and made his final comeback. Power slam modified F5 because I'm pretty sure with the bad ankle he couldn't do his regular finish. One, two, three. They got to that point and I liked the match and I liked both those guys. But then they got to that end point and it, the finish came off flat. And it was a, what? It, they could have done exactly what they did if Hammerstone had moved off of the table and Fatu had moonsaulted through the table and then immediately Hammerstone had hit his finish. Boom, one, two, three. I would have bought that so much more than him getting moonsaulted through the table 
popping back up without selling it. Yes, to show that he's strong, but still, now just, boom, come back, two moves, one, two, three. They lost the momentum. Just ever so much there at the end. So if they could have tightened that up, move on the moonsault, pick him up and hit your fucking finish, one, two, three, I think it that w- the finish would have been perfect. But as it was, these two ought to be on national television. They're grown men, and they can do their shit. And if they had a high-dollar production, it would look a whole lot better. And if they had a bigger building with more people in it, it would have looked a whole lot better yet. And if we hadn't had to sit through a table discussion by four fucking willy-nilly marks about other people's companies, it would have been better yet. I thought that, you know, there were moments I didn't like. I hated when all of a sudden the trading blows. I've been talking about, I've been ranting about it on the shows lately, and there they are doing it towards the end of the match. I think, by and large, if you took this match, as it were, and put it on an AEW show, the people there would have been reacting and really been into it. In this case, it was kind of like when Vic Steamboat won the title from Tony Atlas in ICW. (laughs) Actually, no, because they had a big pop. I mean, that was the problem. They had this match, this big moment, the big title change after whatever you said, a couple of years for both guys. There were some fans celebrating, but no one seemed to really be treating this match like a major match. Maybe I'm wrong. Because, again, the audio did suck. The opening audio, you couldn't even hear the announcer, so maybe the audio was not picking up the room. And I did see some people cheering, but it didn't. It's Philadelphia. You have to take a chainsaw to a baby to get people to really shit themselves because of think all the things they've seen. If I had unlimited of funds to start any wrestling promotion anywhere in the world, put it on any television network and hire anybody to be in it, the one place that I would not go is Philadelphia. Second in line would probably be Florida, but they have seen... Yeah, you ain't lying. Well, Philadelphia, because they've seen every possible thing you can see, and they're the smartest fans, and the at the same time, a lot of them the most blasé fans, because unless you do full-on garbage and kill somebody, you can't move them. They've seen everything. I wouldn't go to Florida because they've had... Free wrestling promotions of throwing the doors open for the past 15 years at almost every show. Come in, please, for free. We'll pay you. So, but yeah, the the response, no, if you put, if you, if you put Jacob Fatu on WWE programming or AEW programming or any programming with any people and any production value whatsoever, and you smash him over for six weeks or so, the people would be ready to buy anything he does. And Hammerstone is a classic example of a... He's he's a modern Lex Luger, and that may not sound like a compliment, but it is because, as we've mentioned, Lex got it finally in, what, 89-90 matches with Steamboat, matches with Flair. If you had that Lex Luger around today looking like that at that size and can work like that, he'd be a megastar. It's just the field was so much more crowded then. And Hammerstone, 
has more personality than Lex did because he's not as uncomfortable being himself and doing what he's doing. So there they are. But uh, I like the match, but it was a, it was a, it was a wonderful portrait in a crummy frame. How's that? The other thing is the commentary. The one guy just kept telling us what a big, big match this was over and over while we're watching the match. And then the fans don't react like it's a big match. So I don't know. Well, also, I th- Rich and MSL and for the audio mix especially, and I've mentioned audio mixes are the worst part about wrestling. Their voices are too similar. You couldn't tell who was responding to who in some cases. And I thought that, that that was a little disorienting verbally as well. Or felt like watching Broadway boxing on SNY. I don't even know what that is. Yeah, someone in New York knows what I'm talking about. Well, there you go. Well, somebody in New York, we're calling you. Anyway, but we wish uh, Hammerstone well in recovering from his sprained ankle. And, you know, I'm thinking maybe as as he recovers, he's obviously at home. He's got his his foot up on a on a pillow maybe he's icing his ankle whatever he's probably you know wanting to to eat as healthy as possible to make sure that he comes back in as good a condition as if he has to miss any time and of course part of that when you're sitting around with your foot up or your ankle sprained you need to eat a good breakfast don't you don't you Brian I would think so especially when you're laid up and injured a very and maybe while while he's out if he has to miss any appreciable time wrestling, Hammerstone can become their mascot. You know, like th- those those other cereal companies, they always had mascots. They were sugar pushers to kids what they were, you wascally wabbit or Count Chocula. Well, we need to have Alexander Hammerstone extolling the virtues of the healthiest cereal on earth, Magic Spoon. You, What do you think? Would, would he be good to push Magic Spoon? Would he... Do the promos like, if you don't eat Magic Spoon, I will decimate you with the Nightmare Pendulum. Or he'll just bicycle kick you and break his own leg. Regardless. <laughs> Nevertheless, I was trying to get some help for that, but I'll just move on. Folks, if you're trying to eat better, not eat the unhealthy carbs and sugar and junk, and you want to have a nice breakfast, but you don't want to eat all that stuff, go to the folks at Magic Spoon, the amazing flavors you love without all the bad stuff. Zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, only four net grams of carbs in each serving, 140 calories a serving, keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, high-octane, whatever. Build your own box. Now they've got all kinds of flavors. The cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, cinnamon, cookies and cream, maple waffle. Somebody was retweeting. They have even more flavors now. They have not updated their copy. So we got to check in on that. But you can pick your own box. You can build your own box. Build your own custom bundle. Just go to magicspoon.com slash gym. Pick out all these delicious, indulgent flavors. Try them or get them again if they're your favorites and use the promo code Jim at checkout to save $5 off. Remember about the 100% happiness guarantee. If you're not tickled shitless, they will give you your money back. No questions asked. 
If you don't, for any reason, if you're not happy, if you don't like the cereal, they'll refund your money. If you don't like the amount of your tax refund check, they'll refund your money. If you don't like your wife's blowjobs or lack thereof, they'll refund your money. Not in the spot. Come on. It says if you're not happy for any reason. Oh, you mean just about the cereal? Reasons involving the cereal. Reasons if you're not happy. For any reasons involving the cereal, they'll give you your money back. But if you don't like the gum job from old Emma there, it's Emma. your own fault. You'll have to pay for it. Gums? Yeah, the, the gum job. <laughs> All right. Jesus. From their from their devoted wives. If, if you're a devoted wife who's given your husband gum jobs, order him Magic Spoon. He won't complain as much. Anyway. Get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal. Are you editing all of these out? Get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash Jim and use the code Jim to save $5 on your order. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode, the final (laughs) episode under their sponsorship it's a fantastic cereal we all like it cereal jace nakarado was telling me the other day he just ordered a whole bunch more he loves it everyone involved with the show loves it everyone we've turned magic spoon turned magic spoon onto we've turned onto magic spoon they love it yes they've all got smiles so wide they got stretch marks on their lips magic spoon okay good 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 i was afraid where you're gonna go there again what are you talking about? I'm just saying they're happy. They're smiling. Good. They're contented. Good for them. Keep smiling, Magic Spoon. You got to keep smiling just the, to keep on smiling. The keep same way smiling everyone out there does when they eat Magic Spoon. What are you singing? Laughing every day. Got to keep on smiling. Keep on smiling. Keep on smiling. All right, and now we come to the part of the program that you hoped would never happen again, and I said would never happen again, but unfortunately, we have been overruled by the public. The people have overruled us. Roads to the Rotten Week 2. When we watched Week 1, I said, I hate everybody that's involved in this thing, and I will never watch this again. And I fully expected to keep my commitment but brian have we told the people yet well of course you i haven't said it and you've been on the show with me so you haven't heard it so you'll back me up we haven't told the people yet that our review of roads to the rotten week one the reality show involving the social climbing runnels family the review did almost as many views on YouTube as the actual television program did. We have done so far. It's been out for what? Four days, over a hundred thousand views. We've gotten emails by the dozens and dozens. The new contact form at jimcornet.com works. We got the tweets. We got the comments and they all basically said, Jim, Brian, help us put our disdain for this program into words. Why is this on the air? You're the only one that can be a catharsis for our vehement dislike of this programming. You're the only ones that can put into English words how badly we are repelled by this boring, nonsensical, inane television broadcast. So will you do it again? 
You know, Brian, we hate to turn down personal requests from the listeners. So here we are. Week two of Roads to the Rotten. Are you ready for this? I am really ready. And I just want to say here at the top, I loved it. I had such a good time watching it, but I did it the right way. Not only did I get as high as possible before this thing started, pausing dynamite and going downstairs and taking care of that and coming back, but it hit me in my moment of highness. Have you ever watched The Office? Were you ever into The Office? I have started watching The Office now, but I didn't watch it before because I hadn't seen it from the start and I didn't think I'd know who everybody was, but as they've been playing incessantly on Comedy Central and some, I've started watching it and it is oftentimes hilarious. Well, but it, but intentionally, intentionally and Cody and Brandy together are kind of combined like a combination of Michael Scott and Dwight in that if you watch the show thinking all these people work there, Tony Khan is their boss and they all have to pretend that these boobs are really the boss and laugh at all their jokes and pretend they're interesting. And then as soon as they leave, everyone rolls their eyes and goes, what the fuck was that? It's just like The Office. Cody and Brandy are Michael Scott on The Office. Just an out-of-touch boss who isn't even the real boss. Who everyone puts up with because he was in The Office, but he's a complete... Well, actually, Michael Scott isn't as much a sociopath now that I think about it. (laughs) But anyway, what were you saying? I'm saying I think you're crazy. I think you're still high. Because the point is, The Office is is a funny program where they're intentionally trying to be funny within the context of the program, not a reality show where they're trying desperately in some fashion to be entertaining, but are only doing so in, what do the kids say, an ironic fashion where you're like, oh God, this is so bad. Moments of it are morbidly funny. It's a real life version of The Office. I'm not saying it's a situation comedy in the guise of a documentary. I'm saying this is more like a mockumentary showing the distorted reality of two people and everyone in an actual ecosystem that works putting up with it. But the TV network had to be sold the bill of goods that this thing might actually be of interest to people. And I'm trying to figure out how they were so far off the mark. Oh, come on. Imagine you're sitting in a boardroom over at TNT or TBS and Cody comes in and presents you with some of the new stars you'll meet on the show, like QT Marshall. Come on, this guy will be in every American's living room before you know it. Everyone will love QT and Preston Vance. With charisma like these guys have, this show's going to take off. All right, last week was one hour. It was allegedly two episodes, but it was one hour. This week was listed as two 30-minute episodes. I don't care how they broke it up. It uh, Double or nothing was coming up, the pay-per-view, at the point where they shot this. When, When did that happen? That was way back earlier this year. That was the springtime, but I don't remember exactly when. The beautiful spring. So Cody has a Nightmare Express bus. The whole fucking red, white, and blue Nightmare Express. It's a tour bus. It was even bigger than the Lex Express. Luger didn't get a big bus. Did Tony Khan pay for certainly to God? You know. Cody Rhodes did not use his own money for this bus. So Tony Khan paid for this bus for the program or just for him to ride down in it and be on this show or what? 
Don't discount Cody Rhodes buying himself a bus. He's not going to fucking. I don't know that he did, but don't discount the idea that Cody Rhodes, who put his fucking logo on his neck. I've dealt with a lot of tattoo artists recently with the artwork for the channel. Not one of them thinks that was a good idea. He absolutely bought that fucking bus. Well, anyway. They're going to take this bus to Florida, and he tells Brandy, and Brandy doesn't like the bus, but he promises that she'll be comfortable, she'll have her own bedroom. The boys aren't, it's just going to be maybe QT. Now, when did QT turn on Cody Rhodes? That was, I think, the, was it the end of 2020? Am I wrong? I think it was the end of 2020. The point is... Maybe early 2021, but yeah, somewhere in there. They, he's definitely no longer friends now, so they're showing him and Cody and QT are friends on this show, but Cody, but QT has since turned on Cody and made an ass out of himself with trying to get even with the Nightmare Factory versus Solo, Camarato, Agogo. But now they're friends here on this show. And I think they probably, he had probably turned on him even before this show. So they're just, it's just insanity. They plug the Nightmare Factory wrestling school. The, the, the coaches at the Nightmare Factory are Ricky Starks, Aaron Solo, and Preston Vance. Starks, okay, I'll buy that. The other guys should be in the class. Seriously, these guys are the trainers at the, at the school. QT Marshall compared a babyface winning a wrestling match to a man climaxing. And... If you have to use the the phrase a man climaxing, then don't make that comparison. They say a babyface winning is like coming. Anyway, that was a pretty cringe moment. Can you imagine this guy is <laughs> this guy's like one of the top guys behind the scenes in AEW? It's mind blowing. Yes, well, and also it's he's speaking whereof he does not know because he's never been a babyface that actually won, so he never got anybody to climax um (laughs) cody at the same time he's talking completely openly about wrestling being a performance then he's talking about starks's broken neck so they they're basically with this show they're driving home the thought everything we do is phony but it's still dangerous so you're even stupider you're taking a chance on hurting yourself to do phony shit instead of actually really do something um Cody goes to Teal's house, his sister, she still doesn't like Brandy. They talked about how to raise a daughter. I fast forwarded this. I fast forward anything to do with the family now because it's people sitting around their kitchen table talking about shit that I don't care about if it was happening to me. Then Starks and QT show up at Cody's house. Now, I know Starks was a heel, even if QT wasn't a babyface, so but they're good friends and they show up at the house and try to put Cody and Brandy's baby buggies and shit together. And they couldn't put the baby seat in the car. They couldn't figure it out. Why would anybody watch this? Who cares? Um, then they forgot to put a bed for Brandy on the bus. So she's like, I'm about to get off this fucking bus. And that's where everybody started. Really? Seriously? Will you? They got to Daly's place. They were visited by wrestling legend and entrepreneur, Eric Bischoff. And (laughs) why did Cody feel the need to verbally fillet 
Eric Bischoff by talking about how his extreme importance to the wrestling business. He's not going to get a job from Bischoff. Who would tell Eric Bischoff that he was revolutionary and and genius-like in the wrestling business unless they were trying to get a job? Or if you didn't know anything about wrestling history. Well, but you thought you were the wrestling sage. One would think um, they showed Cody telling everybody what to do at the weigh-in between him and a go-go. And then they recapped the weigh-in segment, including the scale not working, the fireworks going off next door, et cetera, et cetera. And they basically went into 10 minutes of hand-wringing and pearl-clutching on the rotten weigh-in, which was nowhere near the worst TV segment that they've ever done, much less ever in wrestling. But for this story, it had to be horrible. (laughs) And if that's the best TV disaster story they've got, how many things on live TV and wrestling or live-to-tape television have been way more rotten and fucked up and not work than this, for heaven's sake? Yeah, Cody hitting that throne with a sledgehammer. I'm talking about real bad, not bad judgment. I'm talking about... It didn't work. Shit falling apart. The explosions didn't work. Nothing happened. Well, that's... <laughs> their explosions never work. <laughs> that's right. Um, hey, I got a story for him for Smoky Mountain Television. I walked into a fucking high school gym one time. As soon as I walked in the door for the TV taping later on that day, I'm carrying my briefcase. I'd look over and there's the fucking producer plug something into a goddamn cable connection box and the thing blows up, bam! And the lid of the box flies up in the air 30 feet and lands about five feet in front of me, bounces three times, and I hear the guy say, is there a radio shack in this town? That's when you know you got a bad TV taping going on. Or we were in Pikeville, Kentucky one night. And taped two hours of TV and had two more hours to go. And since we had a TV truck and the lights plugged into the fucking high school gym in Pikeville, the transformer out on the pole blew. And the fire department were the sponsors. And I said, what are we going to do? And the fire department, the chief, gets on the phone and said, is Sam there? Well, wake him up. He called the guy in charge of the electric company, got him up out of bed at 930 on a fucking Monday night to bring his truck down, climb the pole and fucking fix the transformer so we could tape two more hours of TV. They're worried about a scale. It doesn't work. (sighs) Anyway, so then entrepreneur Eric was back (laughs) hanging out at the hotel bar now. And Eric, I believe that. Well, I believe that. I believe that. Uh, he's completely given up on coloring his hair or shaving. Apparently, he didn't want to look like Meltzer did. Um, how old is Eric Bischoff? I would think 60-something, but let me look it up. I just turned 60, and he looks like he's got 15 years on me, doesn't he? 66. Well, he's only got six. He does look a lot older than you, yeah. Um, This discussion was not interesting at all. And then Eric gave Cody some words of wisdom from Dusty and said, your dad was the best. Do you think Eric Bischoff really thought that Dusty was the best when they were in WCW or whatever? Anyway, there was much drama 
from Brandy with the women, not only the girls on the roster, then the women from the legal department. They all sit down over her not wanting to take time off, not wanting to take her maternity leave. What <laughs> would she be taking time off? What does she do that they'd be she'd be taking time off from? That has not been identified. They say you do so much. Well, here's none the, of it's been identified. Here's the other thing. Was the intention of this show for each week multiple people to try to convince Brandy Rhodes to just to not wrestle come, again. To even be around the company. Everyone. It's just like, all right, stay home. Take as take as much time as you need. No, but is it's the opposite. They're telling her, they're telling her, go, she won't be forgotten. No, we have no hope that that will happen, that she'll be forgotten. But they're telling her, no, she won't be forgotten. But they're making a big deal out of it. Like, she's not going to prison. She's not going to Devil's Island. She's not going off to war. She's going to go have a baby and come back at some point. But they're trying to build this up like it's, oh, my God. She may never come back. She's 38. She may never be the world's women's champion at this. Hopefully, <clears throat> she wouldn't have been before she got pregnant, so I don't think she's going to be now. Is this, doesn't this has to be an attempt to get women viewers because no man would watch a bunch of women talking to another woman about her maternity leave on television if you tied them to the chair? And Vicky Guerrero was identified as an AEW coach. What is she coaching? <laughs> I don't have anything against Vicky. Never met the lady. She's not a wrestler. And she was a manager by virtue of getting spot to be a manager. But I don't know what coaching she's going to do. And then Brandy went and did one of her Many interviews that she has to do in the course of her job that we have not identified the parameters of yet. And she's doing the interview about hating not being on the show. And she's not going to retire from wrestling. Uh, the doctor is looking at Cody's bad back, which I can believe is bad. But he's talking about having to lead a go-go with a bad back. Because now the story is that they're not having a match because they're mad about the interracial baby promo or the gut shot that he hit Cody with or whatever. Cody is saying on this television program that airs in conjunction with the wrestling show that he's got to lead this green guy to an acceptable match to help the guy's future. <sighs> they showed him going over a spot. Yeah, when you do that, I'll do this. I hate all these people, every single one of them. It's insulting to any true wrestling fan or any true professional to see and hear this type of talk on a wrestling program. And I'm sorry, this is still a wrestling program because the only reason that anybody cares whether Cody and Brandy Rhodes catch fire or not is because they're wrestlers or he's a wrestler. She's a wrestler's wife. So just for a couple of social climbers to do a boring fucking reality show doesn't mean that they should shit in the face of the wrestling business. And that's, that's basically, this show is simply for people to be 
manipulated to try to talk Brandy into not giving up the wrestling business and coming back after her baby or her trip to Devil's Island. And Cody talking about how he's got to be the one to lead all the green guys and save the wrestling industry. While this airs in the time slot adjacent to their program, which doesn't need any help in making wrestling look phony. AEW Dynamite does a real good job of that in a lot of segments as it is without having them reiterate that everything about wrestling is as phony as a football bat and we should all just laugh at it because it's nothing about it is in any way serious. Fuck all of you. What'd you think, Brian? Again, I watched it as a comedy of everyone in that company laughing at these people behind their backs and putting up with them in front of the cameras. And for that way, I enjoyed it because I realized they don't give a shit about anything else. This is, it's all about Cody and Brandy getting to wherever they want to go to. Can't stop. Won't stop. Brandy and Cody are going to get or try, are they going to get rich or die trying? I guess to take another hip hop phrase. This, this show's awful. I don't know who it appeals to. It's not going to get women viewers on TNT at 10 o'clock at night. It's not going to get any women viewers. By the way, I got the ratings. 369 was the average for the two shows. It was 422 the week before. What do you think next week, episode five and six will be? I can't imagine they'll crack three. I think they will. No, no, no. I don't think we're, I don't think it's going to go down that low that quickly yet. Well, it almost did actually this time. So we'll see. They, lo- they lost 50,000. Yeah. From week one to week two. You were saying they can't lose 70 week two to week three. How does anyone see that show as a good idea? And by the way, the bet is still on. Find me the Bucks and Omega in that show. Someone find them. <laughs> There's not one side of them. Luckily, there was no sign of uh, MJF this week either, because I didn't like the fact that he was in that show. He should be nowhere near any of this reality shit. So well, at least he wasn't they, there. They, it wasn't really his fault. He was sitting at the monitor trying to pay attention to the business that he's in, and they had a shot of him sitting at the monitor as, you know... I used to have to do that every now and then. When they had that behind-the-mat filming, I used to have to jump up and run around corners all the time. Get out of the way. Did anyone in WWE get really annoyed with Barry Blustein? No, they kept trying to get me to be more involved in it. <laughs> Bruce kept saying, oh, you ought to do so. Barry loves you. You ought to do so. I was, I'll, I'll be glad to talk to Barry. I'm not going to be in this fucking movie. It's behind the scenes exposing the wrestling business. I do not want to be videoed or photographed doing behind-the-scenes wrestling business. So I would run from it. And then as I've told the story, Bruce finally beat me up about it so much. He said, here, just do one scene. Show the guys coming for the tryout match where to dress. So if anything gets cut out, that will be. And uh, so here you go, guys. You'll dress down this way. It's in the movie. With all that I tried to stay out of that thing for so long. Anyway, and I guess the answer would have been when they got annoyed with him after the movie came out. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, they were they were all all for having that done until it it came out and they didn't like it. Huh, well, there was roads hey, to the rotten. Can I ask you something? And I wish you would. I guess we'll probably talk a little bit more about it during the review, but it's the same house, so we could talk about it here. I've said that the AEW fans are going to reject Cody, and they have been rejecting Cody. And I've said that he needs to turn heel, and he should turn heel, and he'd be a fantastic heel, and nobody wants him to be the face of the company. So just embrace it. But if he's going to fight it, and he's going to be on TV trying to fight it, if they try to do something, you know, 
to make him a different person and make people see him a different fucking way. Is this show going to help him at all? How's anyone going to no. cheer the guy in this show? He's so unlikable. No, this this would be a good vehicle to facilitate his heel turn because no, I don't think anybody's going to like this person and they're definitely not going to like Brandy because it's obvious that she just has to be put in the middle of stuff regardless of whether she needs to be or not. So I this they could be the hottest heel combination. People talk about how bad I'd get booed if they came out and said, ha, 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 look at us. We're the first couple of AEW and we run this place and we're better than all of you. And break the stipulation and get the and, title. And break stipulation, get the title. Oh, they'd, they'd be snipers. People would be waiting for him in the parking lot. Well, luckily, if there are snipers, Arn's there to protect them. Well, that's true. Old armed Anderson can pick <laughs> them off with his Glock. Maybe he should have named his son Glock instead of Brock. Glock Anderson. That'll be his name when he goes to WWE. Uh, well, what's your name on your programs this week that you're doing on the Arcadian Vanguard Network? My name is the great Brian Last, and this week, another Action Pack Week on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Find out about all of our fan podcasts on Twitter, at Super Podcasts, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. A few notes. Want to make mention of the latest Patreon episode for patrons of Breaking Kayfabe with Baldrin and Barry. Patreon.com slash Baldrin and Barry. This special Patreon episode has two great interviews. One with Bruno Sammartino's biographer, Sal Corrente, and the other with Rockin' Robin herself, Robin Smith, talking about a lot of things, including some of the topics from last season on Dark Side of the Ring, or I guess this season, just earlier in the year, right? That's correct. Yeah, it feels like two seasons to me. But anyway, hear that today, patreon.com slash Baldrin and Barry. Of course, the Mid-South Wrestling Television Review Podcast with myself and Mike Mills. I promised it last week. I mean it this time. Check it out at midsouthpod.com, available wherever you find your favorite podcast, episode 100, covering the debut of the Midnight Express and Jim Cornette, with no E, just Cornette, two T's. And of course... The 605 Super Podcast, The Mothership! The Mothership has landed and it is back. Check out the episode that everyone's talking about right now. Episode 104, War and Peace, The Wimp, The Blimp, and The Wig. Hear it today at 605pod.com, available wherever you find your favorite podcast. A lot of people are saying it is the best podcast of all time. Until next time, because it keeps getting better. The Mothership! Hee-haw! The 605 Super baby. Podcast. That's right. There you go. Well, it's time. We're going to run through this briefly, because I don't know whether I can stand to talk about it at length. They're starting to milk me now, Brian. They actually, they rope me in. Not only with good segments, with quality talent, but they actually have have gotten close enough to where, with the exception of a few off-color segments or a few bobbles and fumbles, they've actually put together a couple of shows lately, start to finish, that were professional over at All Friends Wrestling. And they've even gotten me heat from some of the people. 
Because do people expect me to knock everything they do just because I have usually knocked everything they've done, but I can't knock the good stuff or I wouldn't be honest. It's just that up until lately, they haven't really done any good stuff. Now they've started doing some good stuff. So we expect more of the good stuff. And this past Wednesday night, we get a whole big steaming batch of the bad stuff. So what's a boy to do? From From Philadelphia. Philadelphia. And that's why MLW was in Philadelphia. And AEW is in Philadelphia. All in all, as W.C. Fields said, I'd rather be in Philadelphia, but not at these matches. Uh, October 6th is the date for AEW Dynamite, and they started off. I know why they do this, because I can hear it plain as day, because an inexperienced booker would say this to inexperienced assistants. Hey, we want to have as much time for this match as possible, so we're going to eliminate the entrances and just start in the ring. Do you know what Vince McMahon and the WWE, no matter what, almost have never done in their lives? Take a guess, Brian. I don't know. Start a match in the ring with no entrances. Every once in a while, you might, it's if you're an underneath talent, you might be in the ring or you might get your entrance clipped or join progress or whatever, but you don't make stars or have stars or present stars. If you just open up the TV and there they are standing in the ring and the ring announcer just says, and here he is, Adam Cole, not even a wait or a hometown, just introducing people by their name. And this was an eight-man tag with Jungle Boy, Dino Douche, Christian Cage, and Brian Danielson against the Hardly Boys, Twinkle Toes, and Adam Cole. So you've got Cole and Danielson, two of their newest acquisitions that the people will go absolutely berserk for on their entrances, that they will do yes for Brian Danielson, that they will do boom and Adam Cole, baby for Adam Cole, and they just start him in the ring because it's more important to have 30 minutes of this rotten fucking match. I watched this this week because it's okay, Brian Danielson was Merlin the Magician with Nick Jackson. Adam Cole had a great match with, what was a young Jungle Boy? Oh, Jungle Boy. Can they do it in this environment with every single, and Cutlet and Knock It Off were at ringside, with every single one of the joke, ha-ha, funny wrestlers, can Danielson and Cole work their magic? And the answer was a resounding, fuck no! Nick Hardley starts out with Jungle Boy and they do gymnastics. And the Hardley boys have feathers on their heads that they look like parakeets that had been spit out by a cat. And JR even asked, why can nobody knock their Mardi Gras masks off? Basically, in his own way, they're in a fight and they can't, nobody can knock the feathers off their head. Uh, Christian Cage and Adam Cole did some great stuff together. There were pairings in this that was okay, but 
it quickly degenerated because of the people involved in it into the biggest mess I think I've ever seen on the on their television program. They have taken Brian Danielson, possibly the best technical in-ring wrestler all around in the world, and they've now put him in the middle of one of the worst TV matches that they've ever presented. Jungle Boy and the Hardleys did their ridiculous hand-holding, balancing shit on the ropes. Twinkle Toes made his funny faces. It broke into an eight-way of the first of many. Actually, there weren't many eight-ways. It was just one continuous one after a while. The corpse referee has to be in the Bucks matches, so he's not going to do anything. Did you see the spot where old Brandon Cutlet sprayed Christian Cage in the eyes with their spray can, and then they botched the spike pile driver to Cage on the floor? Yes, I saw that. So Pie Face picks Cage up, ups, and this is a guy with a history of injuries, picks him up upside down like for a tombstone pile driver on the floor, and the idiot brother is supposed to spring off the top rope and jump up in the air and drive the man down in the pile driver. Well, he, he didn't go far enough, so he slapped him firmly on his ass like he was spanking a child. And because of Christian Cage's injury background, Old Pie Face let him down real gently, and it looked like teetotal dog shit. And the doctor comes over to check on Christian Cage, who I had no reason to believe even felt the fucking bump, much less was injured. And Twinkle Toes and Pie Face do bad comedy faces to distract from the angle of Cage's being injured and is going to be taken out and, and not able to continue in this match. So. They buried Christian Cage. He was taken out and never came back as a result of a move that did not connect, obviously and plainly. And by the way, they actually fucking retweeted the botched move by the Hardly Boys on their own official Twitter account. Look what happened here, and then you could see it again. Nothing happened there. They re they retweet the botches because whoever's running their social media is either up the Bucks' ass or doesn't know what wrestling looks like. So then Adam Cole got the camel clutch on one of the baby faces, and the Hardly Boys jumped in, hit the ropes five times in a row, and then kissed Adam Cole on each cheek. Twinkle Toes did some of his phony shit. Uh, Cutlet and Knock It Off tried to interfere and got beat up. The Hardleys and Twinkle Toes did some ridiculous choreography. They were getting the heat on Jungle Boy, and they tried to set up him making a hot tag. But it was constant, here, I'll flip over you, and I'll flip over you. And then after all of that contrived phony bullshit, Jungle Boy just crawled over and cold-tagged Brian Danielson with no heel anywhere near trying to stop him. And instead of a comeback... Brian Danielson just knocks one heel off of the apron of the ring. Everybody else in the match disappears. The whole thing comes to a halt and Twinkle Toes and Danielson get in the middle of the ring and trade forearms with each other. I get that they wanted to leave Danielson and Twinkle Toes in the ring by themselves because that's the issue. But you mean to tell me that Danielson can't make a comeback on all three of the other heels when he gets a tag, and then they take bumps out, and then he's looking at Twinkle Toes. 
And of course, that still doesn't excuse all the other baby faces, Jungle Boy and Dino Douche, completely disappearing. But basically, everybody else in the match went outside on the floor, kneeled down, and in Dino Douche's case, was leaning on the apron watching the match plainly while they do their stuff in the ring. And then when Danielson hits the diving headbutt on Twinkle Toes, then the Hardly Boys jump in and make the save, and then all the baby faces jump right back in, fresh as a daisy, and everybody does everything. Nobody tagged. They just came in and out. Nobody had, had knocked the feathers off the Hardly Boys at that point. All four of the heels were in with Dino Douche forever while the referee just stood there and watched. Then Jungle Boy ran across the ring, jumped over the top rope, and tried to Hurricane Rana, I think it was Pie Face, off the apron to the floor, but he missed him. He didn't scissor his head. He went straight over the top of him. Pie Face kind of caught him, and they both fell to the floor and nearly broke their necks. Then everybody in the match did one dive after another. It has now been minutes literal minutes without a tag from anybody it's devolved into a complete mess of guys just doing moves to each other for no reason then they stopped dino douche and all three of twinkle toes's partners tried to help old twinkle toes lift dino douche up and power bomb him but twinkle toes overbalanced backwards, fell on his ass. This was not the spot. They weren't supposed to botch the power bomb. They just botched it. He fell on his ass with the, the dinosaur on top of him. And then they all just stood up and laughed about it. Now, bear in mind, if that spot had worked, then you would have illustrated that it took the former tag team champions, a WWE superstar, all three to help the world heavyweight champion of this company powerbomb a 270-pound guy, that's if it went well. But since they fucked it up, they proved that the former tag team champions, a WWE superstar, and the heavyweight champion of the world of this company can't powerbomb a 270-pound guy. And then all the faces came in and out intermittently. I wrote this as a match, even for, uh, a match. This match is a mess, even for AEW. And then the referee stood there and watched all four of the heels give the shitty knee lifts to Jungle Boy and pinned him one, two, three, and the referee counted. Brian Danielson was nowhere to be seen even in the ring at the finish. And this, I would say, I mean, tell me what you think. Is this the absolute single worst match that you've ever seen involving Adam Cole or Brian Danielson, either one? Oh, I didn't know you were going to take it that way. It may be. And I know there are some people who really liked it. I really did not like this. I what What was there to like about this? There wasn't any logic sense to this whatsoever. They were falling all over each exactly. other. Exactly. If you're there was into no fucking, that's what you have to be into. If you're into the Young Buck style matches with no logic or reason and no rules and just nonstop, nonstop everything. And how the fuck does Luchasaurus call his spots? Does he just say, "I'll kick you"? What are you gonna do next? Kick. Kick! All he does is fucking kick. But anyway, I, he he can't be calling that stuff anyway because if if he'd called it ahead of time and they knew what was coming, it would all look better. But no, I didn't like this. It went on for a while. A and again, I mean, while. again, you know, I've I've said it before about the super elite as they are now. 
um, that they're better without Cutlet and Nakazawa. And I can't even blame those two idiots for the problem. It was just the whole thing. I would have liked a Kenny Omega singles match better. I would have liked an Adam Cole singles match better. The Bucks are the Bucks. And you're going to be dragged down to their level one way or another if you're going to do their matches. Well, after that stink took up the first 20-something minutes of the program, I was thinking, God damn, can they save this? Well, like Mussolini and Lucy and Desi, here he came. CM Punk, stage dive into the crowd, crowd chanting, music, brings the energy. I wrote at this point, if I ever see him participate in anything like the eight-man abortion that I just saw, I will officially renounce him. Because Cole and Danielson are borderline right now. That they, even if they want to play with their friends, they know business better than these fucking jack-off amateurs. And they know that that match would not, did not do any good for either one of them. So apparently they're going to take the money. So Cole and Danielson are on the border with me, but I've still got faith in my punk because he came out, put Philadelphia over, talked to the people, genuine, there was no writing, he told a story, and it was real, and they know it to be real. He's, it's, this is classic wrestling. Tell them the truth, and then when you start selling shit, where did you where did you end and where did you begin working? You don't know. And he asked him, he, he said, I'll either wrestle for you or buy y'all a cheesesteak. Well, I got news for you, punk. I did that three years ago at the Philly Comic Con. Remember? Have a cheesesteak with JC. That was, I did that. But they decided they wanted him to wrestle anyway. So he's going to wrestle Daniel Garcia on Rampage. And I laughed at that because it's going to be a match where CM Punk gets to wrestle on Rampage because the Rampage ratings have been rotten over the past few weeks compared to his debut. So they want to get that star power and name value on it. But there's Daniel Garcia. He is in the middle of everything from out of nowhere. Fuck. Suddenly, as we mentioned, he's in everything. And then when Punk was leaving, he took off his tennis shoes and gave them to a kid in the front row. What a fucking baby face. I'm surprised he didn't help Mother Teresa back into her wheelchair. So this, this interview segment in front of this, these people with this production, we're back to the big time. After we have just seen the first 20 minutes of the program was the amateur hour. So now we're all, I'm getting whiplash from watching this thing. What'd you think of Punk's promo? Not too much to add to that. Good promo. He's always a good promo. Genuine promo, or at least he feels like that. He is one of the big stars on this show, and it's noticeable. And then they go to a promo with Arn Anderson out back in the backyard at night of Cody's house with a fire. And he says, Cody has gone to Hollywood and he's burning Cody's suit and takes his tie and slaps him and, and makes him burn his tie too. Um, it wasn't long, but I can't argue with the content. Well, I can, <laughs> because it seems like they're trying I like, to, I like Cody having his clothes burned. I understand that. And I think a lot of people there probably do too. And it looks like they're going to try to fight this thing and keep him a baby face by making it, oh, Arn's going to 
Take him away from the douchebag life he's been living for so long and make him, what, Dustin? He's going to be a natural all of a sudden? No. So this is going to be silly, but the fact that Arn is just all of a sudden out there with two cameras and then Cody comes out and so nonchalantly, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are, I didn't notice the lights and the, and the cameramen and the vehicles and the fire burning in my backyard. What are you doing, Arn? Hey, there's some guy starting a fire in his backyard. What's going on over there? Oh, don't worry. There's cameras. I, I don't know. With Cody, you have, a poten- you have the potential to have the best heel in the business if it really was embraced and done right. And instead, we're going to get the Cody Reclamation Project. Of him going into his inner soul and taking the Hollywood out? Oh, give me a break. Uh, well, an old friend of mine was next. For the TNT title, TV title, a lot of T's in there. Sammy Guevara against Bobby Fish. And they did a nice little package on Bobby so we would be introduced to him. Uh, he was a heel. Sammy was doing babyface stuff. Uh, Fish foiled a springboard and cut him off for the heat at one point. And Sammy, for whatever reason, just popped up and fought back. So Fish stopped him again. But there were two heat spots. They go to the break. Come back. He's getting the heat on fucking Sammy. Mr. Centon, Sammy made his comeback. I wrote, why do they have to do superplexes off the top instead of the second rope? It's more dangerous and it looks phony. You can get up on a second rope and suplex or do something off of, you know, to somebody off of that without a lot of obvious assistance and balance and cooperation from your opponent. But when you're two men trying to both step up on that top rope with nothing to hold on to except each other, you are telling people that you're helping each other stay up on the top rope. And I wish somebody would just tell all these people that. But anyway, Fish hit a couple of big moves. He got a couple of two counts, and then Sammy ducked a kick and hit his finish, one, two, three. That was a good, solid match. There was no comedy. There was no nonsense. And it got Sammy over, and it's nice to see Bobby has uh, has landed uh, in a in another spot after his unceremonious dumping out of NXT because he's a, a good talent. So this match was good and solid and professional. And then comes the afterbirth. What did you think about your boy Sammy first? Well, he's not my boy. Let me start with that. He's Jericho's boy. And I thought... You've I, always liked Sammy. I've always thought he was good. I There are other people there I'd be elevating before Sammy, to be quite honest. But I think Sammy's good. I think the fans are really into him. I wasn't crazy about this match. I like Bobby Fish a lot better in tag matches than I do in singles matches. I can see that because they had more of an established team when he was with O'Reilly and they were very good. Yeah. Um. But anyway, hey, after the first match, small favors. It was serious. It made sense. They didn't bury the referee, and they didn't do anything obnoxiously phony. Until the afterbirth. Because here comes Dan Lambert and America's top team, and they attack Sammy. And Junior Dos Santos is out there. And they are now breaking, I don't know breaking in is the right word, but they are they're bringing Junior Dos Santos into AEW to have a wrestling match. The problem is 
Junior Dos Santos is one of the major names in mixed martial arts. As long as he doesn't do anything physical, people have in mind that he is a badass on a world-class level. But since he can't work, and he got in here and gave Sammy phony ground and pound for no reason, then you've exposed that Junior Dos Santos can't fucking work, but he's trying, which means he's a phony. A phony, a big fat phony, which negates the reason to bring him in because he's a shooter. The people think he's real until they see him do phony shit. They saw him do phony shit here because he can't work. And then Fago Del Solo comes in and they get more bad heat. And then finally, Jericho's music plays. And Jericho and Hager hit. And they have a phony fight, because we know Hager is a mixed martial arts guy, and he's also a wrestler. His work isn't great, but it's better than most of the MMA guys, because he's got some experience at it. But we were expected to believe that Chris Jericho and Dos Santos went toe-to-toe, and Jericho came out the better for it. Chris Jericho's a 50-year-old pro wrestler. Junior Dos Santos is a 30-something-year-old former. Wasn't he the UFC champion? I believe so, yes. But you got Dan Lambert, you got Paige Van Zant, you've got, I believe, Sky and the other Paige were in there, and you've got Junior Dos Santos and somebody else, and Jericho and Hager hit and cleared the whole mess out of the ring. So already these shoot fighters, these UFC MMA stars who are supposed to be the reason why you're using them is because people think they're legitimate. You put them in a phony-looking angle and punked them out. So what's the fucking reason from here? Now you've just got green inexperienced workers. They've already got those on the roster. They didn't need to import any. Lambert does a promo from the stage or from the ramp and challenges Jericho to a six man on the 15th next week in Miami. But nobody in the building was listening to him. They were booing over him because they don't want to hear it. And that's, that's great for a heel, but they didn't hear it. And then Jericho tries to reiterate what he said, but his mic quit. So he threw that down, got another one, and accepted the challenge. And this was the shit segment where everybody got to say shit five times. So, again, the reason for using mixed martial artists, UFC names, is because people think they're real and what are they going to do to my favorite wrestlers? When you involve them for free, unsolicited, just let's get them physical, and they show that they can't work and they're not going to shoot, then you have negated any reason to have them around, which there is a reason, a big one, because they're real and people know who they are. Junior Dos Santos is a bigger mainstream sports name than anybody on this fucking show except for Danielson and Punk, probably. God damn it. Did do you did I explain the reason why to use shooters well enough that you understand, Brian, that the people understand why they just shit the bed on this first thing? I think so, but I think there's numerous reasons why they have been shitting the bed with this feud. I don't well, think that's but, the only one. But I mean, just just because I, I at first when Arlovsky was there and it said the, the the MMA guys wouldn't get involved physically. I figure it might be contractual things. So they don't can't get hurt in case they got a fight coming up. 
but the threat of them being around was because they're legitimate was something, but now they're getting them involved and they're not showing them to a strong advantage. They're just having them get the useless heat that nobody knows how to get anymore, where they're all just tackle somebody and throw shitty looking punches. And now the people have seen that they're, they're obviously not going to shoot and they can't work. So they've negated the only reason for them to be there. Anyway, Tony Schiavone was in the ring with the new TBS title belt since we're moving off TNT. But apparently now, is the TBS title belt going to be only for women? Yeah, they said it was a women's belt. Okay, then they've got a TNT title because I guess Dynamite is going to stay on TNT. Or not Dynamite, but Rampage. Rampage. On Friday night, it's going to stay on TNT. They're going to make the, t- the TV title on Dynamite for the women. They've already got a women's championship. Now they're going to have another women's title. They don't have a women's division that's good enough to carry this. But also, the, the point of derision and jocularity on the internet, the way the TBS logo is written across the face of the plate, it looks like it can also say, if you put somebody's mind on this, you can't unsee it after you think about it. The hose title, H-O-S. Have you seen those pictures? I completely agree with you. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. You cannot unsee it. It looks like TBS is written as H-O-S in the font that they have used. So the new women's title is the hose title. And then Jim Ross did a sit down with Darby Allen, who tried to explain why he paints his face. And we've told the story. The story has been eked out in various places. He was five years old. His uncle was an alcoholic. He got drunk. He's riding in the car with his uncle. His uncle has a wreck. His uncle gets killed. Darby survives. In that case, if I was Darby, I'd be like, fucking A. But no, it scarred him. And he paints half his face because 50% of him feels dead inside. And et cetera, et cetera. And MJF is not going to beat him mentally or physically. This might be a great story, except listening to him tell it verbally or speak in any way is as exciting as watching a gate hinge rust. Just sit there, watch the rain, watch the dew, watch the sun, watch the dark, watch the bird shit. A year, year and a half, that hinge will rust. And it'll take about the same amount of time before Darby Allen, verbally, vocally, has any goddamn enthusiasm in his voice. So anyway, instead of feeling lucky, like, okay, I made it, it scarred him for life. So he paints half of his face because 50% of him is dead inside. And I'm sure, you know, maybe we could get our friends at Stat Hero to put some more odds on that. Could we get him up to 75% living? Maybe that would help him out. But anyway, so that's what he did. Then he has an entrance for his match. And Darby Allen is going to wrestle Nick Comarato with Solo, Noah Gogo, but Riho and Miro. He comes out for his entrance. He jumps up on the top turnbuckle. Darby Allen does, gives his pose for all the people, and then... They've got a close-up on him, and he just does a front flip off the top rope. I'm like, what the fuck? Did he just commit suicide? 
He just dove off the ropes. And then when they cut to a different shot, you see that the opponent, Comorado, was standing on the floor underneath him because the, he was not in the shots. You had no idea. They jumpstart matches with job guys, with dives off the top rope to the floor. And I just said, fuck me, I'm done with this. I fast-forwarded that match. It's a job match anyway. Darby Allen won. And as soon as Darby Allen won this job match, in just minutes after a jump start with a dive off the top rope to the floor, guess what they got to have? An afterbirth. QT Marshall comes in from behind Sting as Sting is standing there watching Darby celebrate, spins Sting around and hits Sting with a diamond cutter. And Sting pops up and doesn't sell it, grabs QT and gives him the scorpion death drop. So a jump start and an afterbirth with a no-sell for a meaningless job match just to get Darby Allen a win. That's all they needed to do. But they've also got to have Sting do the Scorpion death drop or do something physical on every television program, apparently now, so that sooner or later, very soon, people will get tired of that and start seeing through that. Oh, now so here comes a spot where Sting has to do something to somebody. What the f- when you do it when it counts, it means nothing because they've seen it 15 fucking times. Then they went, though. Did you have any comments on this match? I don't disagree with you about Sting, but I think the thing is a lot of those fans, they come there to see the thing they've seen 15 times. And I think the reason Sting is no-selling and popping up and doing his move a lot is because maybe that's the only way you get your use out of Sting. If he's only going to wrestle a match every now and then because of his age and his physical limitations i'm not saying i agree with it but so much of aew every young bucks match is just about like the circus is in town let's give everyone everything they want and i think that's kind of the attitude with sting you have him do something like that and the fans that are fans of sting are happy hmm. well in the back was the dork order hi Cole cabana how you doing the last time he <laughs> last time he heard those words, he he did a ton of business on social media. I bet you it won't be the case uh, uh, this time around. Yeah, that must be just. Besides the fact that Colt Cabana has not been in a meaningful television match in over a year, and he just stands around with the rest of these jobbers in the dork order and laughs every once in a while. Now he's got to sit there and watch his former friend come in and not only be the biggest star in the company, but probably the highest paid. And mm, anyway, a bitter pill. Uh, Tony Schiavone was in the ring with Dante Martin. And Tony actually got an entire sentence out to comment and pitch to Dante Martin to speak and Dante Martin just takes the fucking microphone away from Tony and Tony just backs up in the ring like okay but then why is he there and Dante Martin takes the microphone and, and like he's making a toast at somebody's wedding just takes over this show and he's there to fight anybody that's what Dante says so immediately the lights go out and I'm Within seconds after the phrase, basically, however he said it, I'm here to fight anybody. Lights out. Lights on. Malachi Black is in the ring behind Dante. Dante turns around. Malachi Black misses him. 
hits him with the roundhouse kick. Martin takes a great bump. The lights go back out. The lights come back on. And there's Malachi Black standing there accepting the challenge for next week of Dante Martin. <sighs> What'd you think of this? Let me start by saying I like Dante Martin a lot. And I hate him taking the microphone, although <laughs> I thought he did pretty good on the mic, all things considered. He did. And I think he has a really bright future, as long as his legs stay. You know, as long as he doesn't lose his ability to jump. He'll have a really nice future. And then I kind of thought this was Malachi answering the challenge. I guess I didn't even think about the idea. Is this Malachi building to another match? I guess it is. I just thought Malachi was coming out there to destroy a undercard guy. No, he, he said something about, I think they're going to have a match. He said something about accepting the challenge at the end when Dante was laying on the floor in the, after the kick or whatever. But the point is, it's just so ridiculously th certain things can look unplanned even when you plan them, but there's so much planning that has to go into all of this from the lighting guy being involved in it to the exact cue happening to the baby face. When the lights go out, if the lights went out, why wouldn't you dive out on the floor and fucking cover your head up? I mean, it just, it, it's, it's the, announce, the announcer giving over the microphone to the guy and lo losing control of the. It's obviously fabricated, written, pre-produced, laid out. There's no element of spontaneity or happenstance here, and that's it. Just so it just it doesn't get. Oh, it's just sports entertainment. But Malachi's over, so I mean that's the issue. Malachi's over. That's yeah. the issue. The people there are just happy to see him. And it could be the, done in a shitty way, and unfortunately, it's a very forgiving audience there with that stuff. The people there are happy to be anywhere. They are happy to see anything. That's the one thing is they have the most forgiving audience probably since ECW. And But the problem is, is that, as we've mentioned, the bigger the fan base gets or you want it to get, the more people involved in being fans and viewers the fewer of them are going to be the ones that will forgive anything. And as you get more of them, they're going to be the ones that are asking questions like, shouldn't this shit make sense? And that looks as fake as a goddamn football bat and whatever. They're the ones that you need to grow with. And they're the ones you need to tighten this shit up for. Is Malachi done with Cody? I guess he is. I don't fucking know. They never have rematches. They don't have. They don't do programs. They don't do well. They did rivalries. They, they do matches. Remember, he killed Cody before Cody went away. He killed Cody when Cody came back, and now they're doing this project where Cody has to burn his clothing to save humanity or whatever's going on here. Is that so he can get back to Malachi, or do you think they just move on and Cody does other stuff? I don't care. <sighs> Riggy Starks was in the ring with the FTW belt. That is still around. The FTW belt that Taz got over in ECW because Heyman got it over and that they brought to AEW and is seen every six months, once or twice. And Starks did a good promo. And he knocked Brian Cage for not showing up and coming to work. He was going to beat his ass tonight, but Cage ain't there. And suddenly... 
The music plays, and here comes Cage. And runs in and beats up, quote-unquote, Starks for a second until Hobbs and Hook pull Starks out. The whole thing didn't go 90 seconds, did it? And I, that's it what, couldn't have. It couldn't have. No this way. is what I'm talking again is you can't even... <laughs> You can't even let the preposterous, obviously pre-planned shit breathe just a little bit. As soon as he said, well, I was going to beat his ass, but he didn't show up. There is music plays, and here he comes. Where was he hiding? Why were you so convinced that he didn't show up when he's obviously right back there at Gorilla 60 seconds after you walked out? Hikaru uh, Shida faced Serena Deeb and Sheeta was trying to be the first female in AEW with 50 wins. And I asked more importantly, why would anyone book her 50 times? I was running late. I love Serena. Is she that offensive of all the ones you have a problem with? Is Sheeta that offensive? I don't care. She's the one that fucking every match. And she tried to do it here. As I mentioned, I love Serena Deeb. But she does the thing where she goes outside on the floor, takes about 30 or 45 seconds to fucking hoo-ha around while the referee stand there with his thumb up his ass, sets up a chair, makes the baby face stay in the right position for however long, and then runs down the fucking floor and jumps up on the chair and does a fucking knee lift off the chair. And that takes a minute and a half to get that. And it's every match, like Lawler dropping the strap, or Flair fucking falling on his face. And it just, I'm sorry. But in this case, I was running late, and I love Serena, but not that much. But I fast-forwarded the match, but I knew that Sheeta would try the chair jump, and guess what Serena did? She got up, folded it up, and chucked it back under the fucking ring. So Serena Deeb even more over with me, and she won this <laughs> match. And turned heel. I don't care. I, I, as long as she beat Sheeta and didn't go for the chair jump, I don't care. Um, did I miss anything else with this? Yeah, I think you covered it pretty well. Very good. Next up, Officer Bar Brady in the back asking Darby Allen if he will face MJF next week. And again, Darby Allen, in what I assume is a hypnotic trance, mumbles acceptance in a very non-emotional, kind of bummed-out way. And then, now bear in mind, they're in the back of the arena. Marvez has just asked him the question. He's just answered it. A limousine pulls up behind Darby Allen. Darby Allen turns around and is ready to fight. A limousine just pulls up, but he figures if it pulls up behind him, who knows who's in it? They're going to fight me. He takes his fucking jacket off, takes his shirt off. He's like, come on out of the limousine. And Sean Spears in a ski mask nails Darby Allen with a chair from behind. That fucking Marvez never said boo to a goose. Didn't say look out, watch out. Didn't warn him. So you mean to tell me in the in the 10 seconds or 15 seconds from the time that we last saw Marvez on camera ask Darby Allen that question and hold the microphone for him to answer, that as soon as Darby turns around and sees a limousine, Marvez fucking takes off and leaves the entire building and has no idea that Sean Spears is 10 feet behind Darby Allen when he's obviously right off camera. 
And then Spears hits Darby with the fucking chair from behind and then goes over and reaches and grabs the camera away from the cameraman, which I thought, well, that's a nice shot or a nice touch. They're taking the TV camera from the cameraman because certainly this cameraman, being a goddamn compassionate human being, might try to help or at least stop shooting, but Spears steals the camera from the cameraman, puts it on his own shoulder, and starts shooting the attack on Darby Allen as the other guys get out of the limo. You know what was the matter with that whole thing that I just said, Brian? When he took the camera from the cameraman and put his on his own shoulder, they switched to a different camera shot of another cameraman right behind that guy. And he's, and you see a close-up of Spears with the camera on his goddamn shoulder from the other cameraman that's right behind him. And they beat up Darby Allen and they run him into a stop sign and they run him into the wall and they they power bomb him or whatever on a guardrail and nobody tries not only does nobody try to help nobody even calls out hey hey rube anything nobody alerts that there's a fight it's like there's no other human beings in the building except the Darby Allen the people in ski masks that are beating up Darby Allen and the cameraman that's still shooting them. And MJF was the last one in a mask, and he got on him and did whatever and then walked off. Not a single solitary soul. Actually, I don't even know. When they came back, well, I guess you can't grieve forever. They came back, he was already scraped up off the fucking concrete because Tony was in the back with Britt and Reba and... Jamie Hader about the hose title. TBS title. Whatever. Oh, and I forgot. And and Leo LBO Rush it, was doing a promo and he was talking to Dante Martin because he wants to be on Dante Martin's side. I assume so that he can then turn around and stab him in the back. And he's all he's the leveraged buyout king now. How long do you think it's gonna be? Until he retires. Until he retires. <laughs> I knew where you were going right away. Um, he's going to feud with Dante or at least have a match. I'm going to go long. I'm going to go seven months. I'm going to go. I'm going to play the long game. You think he'll make it till the start of next summer before he quits the wrestling business again and decides to become either a double knot spy or an astronaut? One day a week, although more than that. In terms of time, you're around everyone, and it'll take some time for people to get fed up with him or irritated by him, the people who would. The people who like him, who are already there, like him. I think he could have a bit of a go here, unless, you know, him and Mark Henry go at it again, but, you know, we'll see. That would be interesting. That'd look like a fucking duck on a June bug. Anyway. I wasn't crazy about the Darby getting attacked thing, and I kind of said it last week about the promo. With um, MJF, I think you can kind of streamline it a little bit. I think it could be a little simpler. I'm excited about Darby and MJF as a match. I just think like for week two to go to this level, it seemed like a bit of a jump and a bit of a, to me, an unnecessary jump. When you have someone as talented as MJF on the mic, you could do a lot of simple stuff just because of the heat he can get by talking instead of something like this. I just thought I would rather see something like this maybe week 
I don't know, week three or week four. Here's a question. A little further down the line, maybe. Was that MJF? I thought it was clearly MJF. Well, then why did they all have masks? I've done the ski mask angle before when I didn't have... seekers, yeah. Yes, I didn't have uh, Pritchard and Del Rey in, in Tennessee to jump them, so I came with two guys in ski masks because it was well done, but we acted like it was the bodies, but they weren't there. Well, if this was all the, the real people, and it's obvious that they can commit crimes willy-nilly in the back and weekly and nobody ever gets charged, so why were they trying to hide their identities unless one of the antagonists could not be there and you were trying to make people think that it was. In in other words, it doesn't make any sense if it really was MJF for them to be wearing the masks. Except somebody went to a fucking army surplus store or whatever and got some masks and shit and decided to... That's what Rick Rubin, when I drove him from Knoxville to Hendersonville, Tennessee, for his first in-person visit with Johnny Cash. and got to have lunch at Johnny Cash's house by a cracky. But it was vegetarian, so it sucked. Um, we stopped on the way, uh, along interstate 40 on the side of the road at an army surplus store and looked through and he bought two ski masks and two sets of real brass knuckles and said, here, do an angle with these and gave me the masks and the brass knuckles. That's why I did the fucking goddamn angle with ski masks. The brass knuckles were real. They weren't easy to work with. So we didn't use those. Where were we? We were talking about Darby getting attacked by MJF and well, what we think is MJF and his pinnacle, who I guess are still together. It answers that question. Where was Tully? Well, Driving the car. Where, where The whole pinochle thing gets on my nerves anyway. But nevertheless, you're, are you ready for the main event? Uh, I guess ready, yes. Well, I wasn't. Because in the this, they backslid to a, mostly an amateur hour production after they've had several weeks where they've been cooking. And the main event on this program was another one of these casino ladder matches, multi-man matches. I get they get a title shot later on down the road, whenever the fuck, blah blah blah. The participants. Because it's a seven-man ladder match. Everybody fighting for themselves for a shot at the title. Pockets, Pack, Andre Oliolio, Mad Hardy, Lance Archer, John Moxley, and a Joker, an unidentified co-conspirator. Pockets is the first one out. He comes out with the mascot of the Philly 76ers. So the mascot of All Elite Wrestling makes an entrance with the mascot of the 76ers. Isn't that like putting a hat on a hat? A mascot seconding a mascot? I guess. And and then with these other... Okay, it's a ladder match. It's a seven-person match. Pockets is in it, so it, it's not important, and it can't be taken seriously. And I wasn't going to watch this shit. Because I knew what they were going to do, and on the fast-forward, it re- was revealed to me that I was correct. Um, All I saw was ladders, chairs, tables, and bullshit. Baby faces trying to cripple the- baby faces. 
I can understand having baby faces in the same match, every man for himself, because it's for a title shot or whatever. But that doesn't excuse one baby face doing something to another baby face that should, if they ever sold it, hospitalize them and potentially shorten their career. That's not a baby face thing to do. But these guys don't know how to be baby faces or heels because they are under the mistaken and stupid impression that they don't need to do that anymore. That's why they're all floating around in fucking obscurity where they are with no clearly defined anything. And they're going to kill somebody with all this furniture. They're going to kill somebody. At at one point, who was it? Um, oh, God, and by the way, the Joker was Hangman Adam Page. And he almost killed... Uh, it was a uh, fucking uh, a goddamn pack off the top of the ladder, head first through a fucking table, almost didn't get him turned. And I know as hard as it is to believe there are still people who think that Adam Page should be winning the title anytime now off of good old Kenny Olivier. Maybe before they made him a sad, sullen, unreliable drunk with no confidence hanging around with job guys and giving them rides to ice cream shops on his lawnmower. And then they left him twisting in the wind while they brought all the other big names in. And then they gave him a couple months off for his paternity leave. Like he needed to be home. I got news. Oh, there's nothing he didn't wrong ha- with that. There's nothing he didn't have for two months in the middle of a world title fucking issue. If a if he'd have stuck around, they may have put the belt on him. In hindsight, that would have been a drastic error because they've just brought in Brian Danielson. I Punk doesn't need the belt, but Danielson better be the next champion. Page's time has come and gone, and it was actually gone to anybody with a lick of sense months ago when he was being booked to ride job guys and little fucking kids in masks around on his brand new lawnmower. That that doomed him there. His presentation through this whole thing, the only people that would buy him as world champion of anything are the people who are already there and buy everything they do. But now the, the big time has come to town. Page has missed his window of opportunity. If they start doing something with him from here on out that doesn't involve being a sad, morose, unconfident drunk and if he starts hanging around with the main event guys instead of the job guys and the children then maybe they could do something in the future but if if they were to put the title on him from twinkle toes right now with brian danielson on the scene they all deserve a heavy dose of propofol it needs to be a fucking mercy killing Put them out of their misery. They don't have brains enough to live and exist on this planet. And still, people are, oh, when Paige wins that title, it's long-term storytelling. No, it's bad storytelling that ended up making this guy who was really over when they started look like a goddamn goof on the card, and now people think they're still going to put the belt on him. I don't know if they're going to put the belt on him, but I have no problem with them teasing you know, having him win this to set up a match at Omega, you have time to tease that for as long as you want. And 
let other things play out and he doesn't have to win the belt and oh no i mean it's it's fine to have have the match with him but then twinkle toes is going to beat him so he's going to be off for a couple months and he comes back and he gets beat And, and the other thing is and i'm hoping it'll be a miro situation you know, Miro didn't leave TV. They just kind of rebranded him and it's worked and it's been good. Adam Page left TV and now he's back in the Dark Order or fighting with each other or doing whatever. I don't even know. He got a monster pop. I talked to people there. I talked to people in the back that told me it was a monster pop. So the people are ready for him. I'm not saying make him the champion, but they're ready for him. If they do it right the next few weeks, who knows what the trajectory is, but I'm okay with Adam Page being back. Let's see if they get him away from the Dark Order and do it right. Well, that's I'm fine with him being there to begin with. I said at the, at the start of this whole experiment two years ago, Page is a great young talent. Page has oomph. Page has charisma. Page has something. And everything that they did with him, from the goofy drunk to the stupid drunk to the unreliable drunk to the job guy friend of the fucking jobbers gimmick the whole thing made me like him less and less and less because it made him seem like less and less and less of a star so if they'll forget about all that if it was just bobby in the shower all last season and we can start out with having adam page do some more cowboy shit and interact with the main event guys then that's fine but to for any of the fans who think that it would be a good thing for him now to beat Twinkle Toes for this belt, you're absolutely out of your fucking mind. He won this match, so he won a future opportunity at the title, as we popularly call it today, a title opportunity in the future. Okay, he shouldn't win the title. I'm, I don't disagree with you at all. I wouldn't. If you're going to take the belt off Omega right now, it'd be crazy to put it on Adam Page. And I didn't think that a few months ago, but I think it now. How long do you wait? Do you do the match sooner rather than later? Do you wait to do the match? I don't see why they wouldn't at their next pay-per-view do Olivier and Page and have some way or another, the heels will fuck Page and Danielson will come out and have the last word on Twinkle Toes. And then when would their next pay-per-view be? Three months later, by then have the match and fucking put the belt on Danielson. Because then you've got a major mainstream name, one of the best performers in the business. People know him. He can get press coverage. You know, they go out and they pitch, well, this this new underdog company, uh, you know, challenging Vince McMahon. He's got competition for the first time in 20 years. But people with prominent or responsible news outlets still don't want to talk to some jack off nobody's ever heard of if they're going to do a story they want to talk to somebody who's been the wwe champion and is now uh, the standard bearer for the upstart company that gives it credibility with people who don't pay any attention to this shit and are the ones that they want to get start watching their shit the ones that aren't paying any attention because there's so many more of those than there is the people watching any of this stuff from any company these days. So, yeah, fucking don't do it tomorrow. Don't run off and leave everybody. But, yes, point to the direction where sooner or later Brian Danielson can be your champion. And I say that simply because Danielson will have longer matches with more variety of opponents 
and punk don't need the fucking belt. And for whatever you do, Tony, please don't make it a three-way match, please. Oh, good Lord. No, the, uh, the only possible way that you could negate the momentous occasion of Twinkle Toes losing the belt or Danielson winning it is to have it in a three-way where the focus is not clearly on the two participants and they've had some kind of choreographed bullshit that's given somebody an out they didn't need. You know, the idea of Adam Page versus CM Punk doesn't really excite me, but Adam Page versus Danielson could be really good. Well, I wouldn't be in favor of that because they're both baby faces and they do enough of that foolishness as it is. But if they turn Page heel one of these days because he's mad at how he was booked for the first two years, that would be a realistic reason. But no, you just they the the fans that are there love Danielson and they love Page. Why have that fucking match? Who would the people want to win? It's a great match to imagine, but just like most great matches that you imagine, wow. Wonder what that would look like when you see it. You realize why you never knew what it looked like before because it was a stupid idea to have it. Are you saying my booking is stupid, sir? No, I'm saying your idea was stupid. Okay, that's better. All right. Anyway, um, so we're back where we started from where NXT sucks, SmackDown is boring, Raw is unwatchable. And now AEW is back to the Ted Mack Amateur Hour. It looks like the America's Got Talent auditions again, whereas for a few glorious weeks there, we thought they were getting the hang of it. Hey, maybe they are getting the hang of it. Maybe this was just, hey, we got to get all these other jerk-offs on TV. Where are we going to do it? I know, Philadelphia. Let's just get all the shit on the show in Philly, and next week we'll go back to the normal stuff. Where's next week? Is next week Miami? Miami. Oof. Boy, that Dan Lambert promo, I know everyone loves it, but it's not good. When the, everyone was singing and the music's playing and he just keeps talking, he's just reciting shit. It doesn't seem in any way natural. But anyway. Remember, too, too quick, no ebbs and flows, Nothing. not enough punctuation. It's just getting the, the words out. I got a bunch of great punchlines I memorized. I'm going to get them out no matter what. I don't like it. But and they probably they probably need Lambert and those guys in Miami to do whatever they're going to do because Miami is a notoriously hard town to draw in. And have have we not heard that that's their AEW's weakest advance or going to be probably their weakest house? Because it's Miami. It's Miami. Yeah, it's not even AEW in this case. It's actually no. It's it's Miami. Yeah. No, even even uh, when Crockett was doing huge business in everywhere in '86 and '87, not even. You know, e even in other parts of Florida, Miami still sucked. And Miami was never a big town for championship wrestling from Florida. It was regular for years doing three to 5,000 people a week at the convention center down there. But what was the, the record for the Florida territory in Miami was what, 12,000 for the Harley Race Superstar Graham Super Bowl match? And that was a disappointment. Yeah, and what I was going to say before about Lambert, I'm not crazy about him and this whole angle. I mean, Jericho sucks. If anything has come out of this as a positive, Paige Van Zant. there's got to be <laughs> something to do with her. She's great. Everything else around her sucks. Well, you got you to gotta teach her not to do the smile and the parade wave at the camera while people are getting a shit kicked out of them next to her, though. That's her thing. 
See that to me that she could do it. No one else should do it. She, I could buy her doing it. <laughs> She's great. Uh, well, you know, and also she had her, her late brother, the legendary Ronnie Van Sant was a great musician as well. So <laughs> anyway, closing thoughts on this program. I am ready to close my thoughts and get ready for the drive through, which of course will be coming at everyone on Tuesday this coming week, I believe. That's right. Lots and, of questions. And unless anything strange happens, we're going to talk about uh, Friday AEW. We're going to talk about Friday SmackDown if if Reigns or Reigns or Heyman do anything, and then we'll uh, we'll be back next week with the experience. Dark Side of the Ring next week is Luna Vachon. We mentioned that. Apparently, uh, then now wait a minute. So next Wednesday, it's not next Wednesday that the next AEW TV is. It's Saturday night in Miami. Oh, you know what? I did see that because they announced Roads to the Top was going to be on Saturday, which yes. excited me to see how those ratings are going to be. I did. Well, see that's that. the thing. They can't even put Roads to the Rotten as a freestanding television program on their schedule. They have to preface it with a wrestling program or they know absolutely nobody will see it. So they're moving that program from its regular night as well to follow Dynamite. So next week, we won't have to talk about Dynamite here on The Experience. Maybe we'll do a watch-along, some nice, good, competent wrestling from throughout history. Sounds like a plan. I just floated that idea. There's no reason for you to just jump right on it with, with the jaws of steel. Anyway, all right, are you done? I'm done. We're all done. We're done here, folks. We'll be back next week with more good stuff, bad stuff, and intermediate stuff. And until then, for Brian, I'm Jim. Thank you. Fuck you. And bye-bye, everybody. Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch the show Meltzer says I'm in the key demo Meltzer says I'm in the key demo My mom's basement I steal her Wi-Fi And I pay no rent A-W's cool We've got indie stars Drop out from wrestling school Like Joe Janela At the top of the car He trained himself In his own backyard And this is shit Everyone should get Well everyone Except Jim Cornette Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate Who needs women for hanging round in bars When you can watch the Bucks get seven stars When you can watch the Bucks turn seven stars Dynamite's Ever tag team division, haven't you heard? We've got Jericho, Orange Cassidy, and Michael Rio. Like Tony, I do fantasy booking. A title tournament, now we're cooking. And I can wait to hear what Cody has to say when Marcus 
Wrestling heaven. Don't listen to Courtney, he hasn't been relevant since 87. He thinks that Luchasaurus can't work a lick, or that Bobby Eaton could hold a candle to either Matt or him. He wants to cut up our heroes with a rusty fishing knife, or get them in the hot tub to play Scott the Submarine with him and his wife. And no, Mom, I'm not bitter. This has nothing to do with Jim blocking me on Twitter. And now, here comes Miro. Wearing pajamas like me, he's my hero The young bucks could shoot on Buzz Sawyer Make Brock Lesnar take a Canadian destroyer Don't come in, Mom! Don't come in! Are you touching yourself again? No. Did you change the Wi-Fi password? Oh, no! Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Watch Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch this show Elter says I'm in the key demo I am 39, I'm in the key demo I'm a single 